Good morning, good day, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to day six of the uh, grand jury model proceeding of the Court of Public Opinion. Today, we will take a look at the other aspect that hasn't been mentioned yet. Uh, we started uh, by getting a backdrop of what we are confronted with, a historical and a geopolitical backdrop. Then we took a look at the PCR test and learned how it cannot tell us anything about infections, how there are alternative methods of treatment. And then we looked at what do the so-called vaccines do? We found out they're neither effective nor are they safe. On the contrary, they're extremely dangerous. Today, we will look at a completely different topic that um, needs to be looked at um, as a result of all of the side effects, the adverse reactions that uh, are now that cannot be swept under the rug anymore. But we, before we go into this, um, Judge Rui Ifanseca de Castro will summarize the last session. Judge. Good evening, <clears throat> good evening, everybody. The summary of the last of day five of grand jury model proceeding February 2022. First, Patrick Woods explained the agenda 2020-2030 as a plan to destroy capitalism and to establish a new international economic order under the claim for sustainable development. This sustainable development sponsored by the World Economic Forum and the United Nations advocates for scientific management of resources consumption, fintech underlying financial system using blockchain, digital currencies and total surveillance. No private property resource to be held, a resource to be held by a global trust, no privacy allowed. Also stressed out that sustainable development also called as technocracy, is absolutely incompatible with free markets. Since free market can die naturally, things are not so easy for the globalists as they found, the ways they found to destroy capitalism, like with the withdrawal, uh, withdrawal of energy, withdrawal of resources, corrupts to the supply chain, withdrawal labor, withdrawal financing, limit consumption, limit innovation, create cataclysmic events, and create this investing. Slogans for the new economic order that we have been seeing uh, uh, more often than lately, you will nothing and will be happy to start from, from zero and build back better. Then Leslie Manukian, Leslie, Leslie Manukian, Manukian explained how there is going on a controlled demolition of both of, of our uh, of both our political and economic systems through retention of power, centralized control of businesses, assets, natural resources, and elected and unaccountable leaders, super rich elites, and the serf class, zero resources for zero resources for citizens, the reset of political and finance system. And why that is happening now in the US, because uh, summarizing the 2008-2009 financial crisis, explosion of debt um, in U.S. debt, U.S. unfunded pension liability, 2019 repo crisis, and developing countries borrowed in dollars. And in Europe is kind of the same, 2008-2009 financial crisis, 
did not write off bank debt, European debt not consolidated, European Central Bank owns 40 plus more than 40% of European debt, negative interest rates since 2014, and unfunded public pensions. Well, debt can, cannot be kicked down the hill for longer. If you want to control people, you have to get rid, rich, rid of small employers. Uh, that's the, 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 that's why the, the small business are being destroyed and, and COVID crisis was an excuse for that. At the same time, pharma buys influence in medicine, politics, uh, in, in, in medicine, politics and, me and media. How are they going? Uh, how are they doing this uh, through a central bank digital currency that is in the plans, tracked transitions, universal bank income, basic income, elimination of small and medium employers, banking and, and big tech, end of cash and surveillance. The one of the reasons it is to cover up the mismanagement. Bjorn periods. Uh, also explained how the money system creating money out of the air, moving bad, bad assets from the bank's balance sheets to central banks, negative interest rates, inflation and in inevitable collapse are behind the motivation for the great reset. Transfer the debt to central banks and tax tires. Debt impossible to be solved, global effort to get rid of cash through digital identity and creation of a global central bank for digital currency. COVID as a deflation, a deflection for the financial crisis. Christian Christ also explained the background of the rising inequality and its consequences and the increasing debt loan and exploding money printing. Solutions world leaders found to cut debt and money, inflation, inflation financial crisis, depression and deflection, and war. Finally, Miller explained how the interaction between psychopathic leaders and citizens developed, developed to the present abusive, abusive relationship leading to, um, uh, for example, Stockholm Syndrome, and that there is a struggle between good and evil going on. That was a summary of the day five. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. And now we will turn to Patrick Wood, who will give us an introduction to the topic that we're going to discuss today. It's about eugenics and about genocide. And thank you, Reiner. I hope we're on live now. You can see my screen. Yes. And um, hopefully my picture is up there as well. But this is me, Patrick Wood. Uh, these are the three of the books that will be pertinent to today's topic. And they're available pretty much everywhere in the world through electronic bookstores and or physical bookstores that are able to uh, order books for you. We're going to uh, cover some material quickly here in the time that I have. and. Um, I'm titling my topic today, Biodiversity, which I'll explain that term as we go along. Uh, subtitle, The Genetic Takeover of All Living Things. Uh, this is going to be a modern look at what's happened in the last 25 to 30 years on how eugenics has snuck up on us in the most unexpected way. Uh, but nonetheless, it's here, it's real, 
and it's in our face. Well, actually, it's in our arms too, I guess. But uh, you're all familiar with this uh, particular slide uh, or this uh, the statement. The pandemic, uh, says Klaus Schwab, represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Uh, this is described in great detail on the World Economic Forum's website, but it's a boring read and very few people actually go there and partake of it. But Time Magazine did run in late 2020 this cover uh, showing the world being reconstructed. Now, there's no imagination going on here, but uh, the scaffolding is up and the doors are open and things are being done to the world that uh, nobody voted for, but they're out there doing it anyway. Uh, this is a big picture, a great big picture of what's going on. So, um, <clears throat> I want to uh, give you a quotation from the European Academy on religion, and uh, let me get my screen over here, and society. Uh, they wrote recently, while most of humanity is still in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, the highly influential members of the World Economic Forum have a plan for what should come next. It is called the Great Reset, and it envisions, listen now, a truly transhumanist future for us all. This is an aspect that uh, has not been covered too much when people talk about the Great Reset. Many people think of, uh, well, it's economic or, well, it's political. Uh, in nature, but uh, this one of transhumanism is going to be of great interest to us today. So, what is transhumanism? Uh, this is one definition by the founder of modern transhumanism, Max Moore, um, actually lives in Arizona, oddly enough, close to where I live. But he wrote, transhumanism promotes an interdisciplinary approach that is NBIC, I'm gonna explain that in a second, to understanding and evaluating the opportunities for enhancing the human condition and the human organism opened up by the advancement of technology. Uh, attention is given to both present technologies like genetic engineering and information technology and anticipated future ones such as molecular nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. Uh, Max Moore, I will say in passing, is a very bright guy. I disagree with everything he says almost, but uh, he has a PhD in philosophy, which is his background, his primary background. So uh, this was a philosophical proposition exclusively at one time, but now it's morphed into something more tangible uh, thanks to the advancement of technology today. And we all know that technology is racing forward at breakneck speed. So. Let me explain just for a second what convergence or NBIC means, just so you can have a background on this. You notice the four quadrants. You notice that uh, on the left side is physical, on the right side is biology. And if you look at the differentiation over on the right side of the, the screen, there's hardware and software involved here as well. But going around the outside of this in the, in the lighter grain, you see the words atoms, genes, neurons, and bits. What this refers to, and this is where the NBIC comes from, by the way, neurons starting in the lower left, neurons, bits, uh, and then uh, nanotechnology, atoms, and genes. 
the blending of these sciences together, which traditionally had been separate sciences in universities, uh, for instance, information technology had its own department, uh, so did uh, genetic engineering and so on. Um, they have undergone a merging of disciplines in the last 20, 25 years. Universities all around the world have contributed individuals from each one of these various departments to form another discipline within the university that is referred to as a convergence or NBIC. The idea is that these are very closely related by, uh, in particular, by data, by the ability to slice and dice these different uh, disciplines with computer technology. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but uh, this is a new thing. That's all I want to point out here. This is a relatively new thing. It didn't exist 30 years ago, but today it's quite prominent. And because of this, because of this convergence of sciences throughout the world, almost every major university now has this, uh, this particular convergence NBIC in view, and they're working on things. There has been a massive research project going on for all these years where papers, uh, scientific papers and uh, advancement papers have been written. Those are kind of papers in academia that nobody ever reads because they're just kind of only really available to academia. But uh, they've made the rounds and today we're dealing with the outcome of this, the fallout of this. So the summation of transhumanism is this. The central premise, this comes from the World Economic Forum, you'll notice. Mm -hmm. The central premise of transhumanism then is that biology, biological evolution will eventually be overtaken by advances in genetic, wearable, and implantable technologies that artificially expedite the evolutionary process. Now, this is a full of uh, a statement that's full of different ideas. And I want to just comment on a couple. Starting about 25 to 30 years ago, <clears throat> there was a realization amongst the global elite that they had the possibility to use the new tools of biotechnology to essentially take over what they viewed as biological evolution that uh, they believe again, was, uh, uh, you know, part of, uh, you know, 100 million years or whatever worth of biological evolution. And somehow man popped out of the primordial soup and, uh, you know, and here we are today. They believed that evolution was unkind to the world and to mankind in general, because it uh, developed a lot of flaws and whatever that, uh, you know, they're argumentative, they like to go to war, et cetera, those sorts of things. They get other personality traits that they may not like, but they saw the possibility all of a sudden of taking over evolution, evolutionary process, not letting it be random anymore, but rather put a design, an intelligent design, if you will, on top of biological, what they viewed as biological evolution. And so this is exactly what the World Economic Forum is saying this is not a new idea with them. This has been around a while, but biological evolution will eventually be overtaken by advances in genetic, wearable, and implantable technologies that artificially expedite the evolutionary process. So they want to change the evolutionary process. They want to speed it up 
And the intelligent design that they want to overlay on life is one that comes up in their mind. This is the reimagining process. What do you want to be like 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now? And whatever that reimagining is, why they will say, well, we can, we can do that now. We have the tools to do that. Well, a little backstory now. I'm going to take you back to a book that was written in 1994, two years after the Rio de Janeiro conference took place in, uh, well, took place in Rio de Janeiro, but it was the first Earth Summit. It was the, uh, the UNCED conference, that's the United Nations Conference on uh, Economic Development. And it was a very important operation because um, it, uh, this, this giant conference in Rio produced the Agenda 21 document that we talked about in the last time that I spoke uh, about um, the Trilateral Commission and Sustainable Development, where it came from, how it came from. But um, the, uh, the Agenda 21 conference produced two documents. We'll talk about that in just a second. One was the Agenda 21 book itself. And the second was um, the biodiversity assessment or the biodiversity giant book that was like 1150 pages long. We'll look at those in just a minute, but there were two in particular critics of the whole Agenda 21 process at, at the UNSAID conference that uh, had really high expectations going into the negotiations that there would be something positive come out. Uh, they believed as they came out, nothing positive happened there. And they wrote this book called The Earth Brokers. And I recommend this book to anybody that wants to kind of dig into an alternative view of what happened in Rio. But this is, in my opinion, the first book, a serious scholarly book that came out uh, discussing what really happened and what was really important at that uh, Rio de Janeiro conference. And in this book, they made some startling uh, revelations. And um, one of the first things that um, they said, which uh, kind of ties into last week's presentation, um, is that they, they wrote, we argue that UNSAID, that's the UN Conference on Economic Development, that was what the conference was referred to, we argue that UNSAID has boosted precisely the type of industrial development, that is technocracy, that is destructive for the environment, the planet, and its inhabitants. We see how, as a result of UNSAID, the rich will get richer, the poor, poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. And all I can say is, this is pretty much exactly what's happened. Since then, the rich have got richer, the poor have been are now poorer, while more and more of the planet is destroyed in the process. And on any environmental front that you can look at around the world, you have to really stretch to find any improvements. In the most part, uh, for the most part, uh, there has been no improvement, but rather it's gone the other way. So, um, having trouble advancing my slide. So they further said, and this, this turns our focus now to the subject of this really today, the Biodiversity Convention. The Biodiversity Convention ran in parallel with the Agenda 21 conference. In other words, it was in Rio de Janeiro. It was the same people participating in it. It was just a different track. You'll see at conferences uh, all over the world today, 
that take place, if it's a really large conference, you'll see that they have different tracks going on within the same conference, maybe the focus on certain areas. And that's what they did at this uh, Rio conference. So the biodiversity convention was going along in parallel. They were both the same conference, but uh, they produced two different documents as an outcome. The earth brokers wrote, uh, or the authors of the earth brokers wrote this on page 43. And this is worth really looking at carefully. The convention implicitly equates the diversity of life, that is animals and plants. And let me point out, just remember that the technocrat mindset, the transhumanist mindset views humans as nothing more than animals. So humanity is also included in the statement. But it says they equate uh, equates the diversity of life, animals and plants, to the diversity of genetic codes. By doing so, diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate. It promotes biotechnology as being essential for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity. Now, this is a new definition of biodiversity that most of you probably had not heard of before or been aware of, but this actually is the more accurate definition of what the United Nations meant when it created a doctrine of, bio, of biodiversity. Uh, you know, we typically think of, well, as the species in the forest and, uh, you know, the different varieties of trees and animals and insects and so on. And that is one sense of it, but they changed that definition in Rio in 1992 uh, to be concerned about genetic codes and taking over life, if you will. Diversity becomes something modern science can manipulate, they said. And this was just their testimony. They weren't making any type of a comment, whether this was good or bad. Um, but these, these two authors were just simply reporting what they saw. And they, yes, they were a little disgruntled of what they saw. But um, they're not trying to make a statement to us. They're just saying this is what they saw. So next up, after this, we see another statement on page 42. It says, the main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention is the issue of ownership and control over biological diversity. The major concern, now listen to this, this is what they said, the major concern was protecting the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries. This is rather stunning because it wasn't about the environment. It wasn't about making the earth a better place to live. These authors wrote that the main stake, not a minor stake, the main stake raised by the Biodiversity Convention is the issue of ownership and control. That's intellectual property, if you need a little translation there and control over biological diversity. And what did we find biological diversity was? Well, it was a control over genetic, uh, genetic structure of life. And the major concern that they had, the reason they were making it the main stake was to protect the pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology industries. And I'll be honest with you, back in 1994, if I had read this book right as soon as it was published, uh, I probably would not have noticed this phrase because who understood what the emerging biotechnology industry even was? I didn't know back then. I mean, 
I was in the agricultural, I was raised in an agricultural community, and we understood that early on that there was something called bio, bioengineered tomatoes or something that were going to grow bigger and better, maybe used for harvesting with mechanical machines. But if you ask anybody on the street or even in academia, what are the emerging biotechnology industries? You'd get a blank stare. Today, this is very meaningful to us. We have a pretty good idea of where they emerged to. And that's where we stand today. So the Biodiversity Convention was about the control over genetic uh, codes by using genetic engineering to be manipulated and uh, remachined by these biotechnology industries and the pharmaceutical industries. Now, I will say that the pharmaceutical and the biotechnology industries have been joined at the hip. Uh, for these many years, since 1992. So even though he's mentioning them separately here, we see them intertwining throughout uh, modern history to create all sorts of things that have given us, uh, uh, let's say, modern-day fits at, at this point. For instance, uh, let me back up just a minute. Uh, for instance, we've had the engineering of seeds, for instance. Monsanto was famous for this. They uh, they took virtually every food crop they could get their hands on and they made certain uh, genetic engineering uh, changes to the seeds, to the DNA in the seeds, so that they would have some characteristic that could be perpetuated in the field. Uh, for instance, uh, in the case of cotton, uh, they introduced a, um, a natural um, phenomena called BT, which, is, uh, uh, which repels insects. And so they felt, well, we used to spray this on the crops with, uh, you know, either hand sprayers or, or helicopters or whatever. And but now we don't have to do that. We can engineer the seed itself to or the, the plant to um, to produce this BT internally as it grows so the bugs won't bother it. Well, this philosophy hasn't worked out very well, by the way. I won't go into that, but there's lots of disastrous cases of, on how BT cotton went the other way. But they've engineered virtually every seed crop you can imagine, the rapeseed, canola, uh, soybeans, wheat, uh, corn, just about everything that you consume has been engineered by Monsanto. And every time that they engineered a seed, they took it and they got a patent on it. And they said, we own that seed now and you can't grow that seed unless you license it from us. Uh, okay, so much for seeds. Seeds are living material. Uh, part of that uh, definition of biodiversity. Well, now we know that insects have been uh, modified as well. They're, they're genetically modifying, for instance, mosquitoes to, um, uh, to be able to eradicate diseases that are carried by mosquitoes. Uh, we've seen uh, other insects have been modified for different reasons as well. Uh, crickets, uh, for instance, have been genetically modified to be potentially used as a food source of protein for humans. I don't like that thought, but that's that would be a meal I'd pass on. Uh, but then you have uh, things like fish have been genetically engineered. Uh, salmon now can be raised in a salmon farm to grow twice as fast as they used to grow uh, in, in the past. And that means more meat production and uh, more profits for whoever. And then you have other animals like uh, like uh, uh, cattle and uh, pigs have been genetically modified significantly. So sheep and um, pigs are being modified, for instance, to 
with human genes. That's kind of a transgenic process where they take genes out of humans and plant them into pigs. And then the pigs can grow organs that can be trans, uh, transplanted into humans when somebody needs a kidney or, a, or perhaps a heart or whatever. It can be grown in a pig and taken out of the pig and put in the human. So animals have been genetically modified. And just about everything else, you know, birds, chickens, and turkeys have been modified as well. Um, if you think about it, all up and down the line, everything except for humans so far have been genetically modified and heavily so. The seed industry is just over the top. The only thing that's escaped, the only living thing that has escaped modification has been the human population. And you see where I'm going with this. If, um, if the tools today were available to, say, Adolf Hitler uh, in 19, well, whatever, during World War II, the outcome likely would have been altogether different. But uh, we see this philosophy now is rising again. Whereas Hitler's um, means of uh, cleaning up the gene pool, if you will, was pretty simple. Just get rid of everybody you don't like. If you don't like the way they look, well, kill them. If you don't like the way they think, well, kill them too. If you don't like the color of their skin, that's a good reason to kill them. And uh, if there's some other you know, part of the, the demonized uh, scapegoat uh, that what the Jews became, well, kill them too. Just get rid of them. Get them out of the gene pool. Therefore, they won't multiply and, and uh, they won't contaminate the gene pool again anymore. Well, that was his simplistic view of, um, of eugenics, uh, you know, cleaning up the gene pool, according to his vision, of course. He, he reimagined that himself. Today, it's taken a different twist, you see. It's the same old meme. How are we going to clean up the gene pool? Well, now we can just do it directly. We can change. We can edit the seed. The things we don't like, we can edit it out or edit in new things. And we can create life in our own image, whatever is in our mind to do. Now, this is very disturbing as we look at this. But um, uh, today's technology is targeted on the human population for the very first time in a big, big way, at least on a massive scale. There have been some genetic uh, uh, therapies that have been available before this, don't get me wrong. But with today's pandemic and with the shots, uh, the messenger RNA-based shots that are being used today around the world, this is the first massive use of this, and experimental use I might add as well, on an entire human population. So let's talk about those two books that were generated from uh, that conference in 1992. And uh, the first one I want to talk about is the Agenda 21 book. This is available. You can see right on it, it says United Nations Program of Action from Rio. And you can see the logo down below, the United Nations and the UNEP logo as well. This is their official book. It's still available on Amazon and other places. You can buy it. Uh, I recommend people do just so they can see we're not... Um, spinning a, a tail here. So I did a search. Uh, fortunately, I have an electronic copy of this, a scanned copy of this book. And I did a search for several words because word, word frequency in documents is very important to me as a researcher. I like to see what's mentioned most. And often when whatever is mentioned most is kind of the theme of whatever it is you're looking at. So if you do a little word count when you're doing research and stuff, you can figure out what the writer is trying to get at and kind of what's underlying his, uh, you know, his basis, his theory. 
So within the Agenda 21 book, I searched for some words, and they're listed here, genetic, genes, biotech, DNA, ribosome, and I found that the word genetic appeared 22 times in this uh, only is a 340-page, 351-page uh, book. Uh, genes was mentioned twice, biotech was mentioned 23 times, DNA once, and ribosome once. And what that adds up to is 49 mentions <clears throat> in our general era here in 30, 351 pages, which gives a, um, a saturation count of 14%. In other words, 14% of the pages within the Agenda 21 book dealt with this concept of biodiversity as it relates to genetic issues, to genes, to biotechnology, et cetera. And that's not really particularly disturbing. If you just read this book and only this book, you could say, well, that's a minor theme. Uh, it's an important theme, obviously, or they wouldn't have mentioned it on uh, you know, 50 out of 350 pages. But you would not say that this was the main theme, the main stake, if you will, of Agenda 21. And indeed, it was not. If you read the book, it was not the main, uh, the main issue. Uh, but it was, this was an important issue. But when we get to the biodiversity assessment, this is the book that was popped out of that conference. It's a giant book. It's, a, it's like, uh, you know, binder size uh, paper, uh, but it's like 1,152 pages long. If you drop this book on, I mean, it's three inches thick. You drop this book on your foot, you're going to say, ouch. Well, <clears throat> I did the same word search in this document, and lo and behold, the word genetic was mentioned 518 times. The word genes, 162. Biotech, 112. DNA, 97 times. And ribosome was mentioned 17 times. So in 1,152 pages, 900 of those pages contained at least one reference to genetic issues here, like what we're talking about, 78% yield. Now, this confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Earth Brokers authors knew exactly what they were talking about. As I mentioned, they were just simply eyewitnesses. They didn't make any value judgment on it whatsoever. But this confirms that there is, to me anyway, that their assessment was absolutely 100% correct. The main stake on the Global Biodiversity Convention and this assessment book that came out of that was specifically about genetic modification of life. And you can see on the front of this book, by the way, the little fish and, you know, fish is there down in the, in the water. I don't know exactly what that pretends because it's an overlay. But um, when you think biodiversity, think genetic modification. So uh, this kind of proves the point that, that the whole concept of modifying genes and living things has been a big, big issue, if not the main, main issue since 1992. This flew under the radar for so many years. But now, because thanks to everything going on today for the last two years, this has come into full view. This was the plan. This was the original plan. All other forms of life have already been genetically engineered. The final frontier, the last frontier, was humanity itself. And that is exactly what is happening today. So I want to make this statement to tie in between last week and this week again, just, to, just so that you can understand what old Klaus Schwab is up to. Um, 
because he's pushing both technocracy, which is sustainable development, and he's pushing transhumanism at the very same time. And um, you say, well, okay, there's people and there's the system where people live. Well, technocracy uh, is to the societal structure, if you will, it's to the how the economic system will work, um, how the social system will work. But it's a brand new system. As he said, the Great Reset isn't something that we know from the past century. The Great Reset is altogether new. But technocracy is to societal structure and operation as transhumanism is to the humans who will live there. The transhuman condition, then, is a genetically modified person. You could liken it to Hitler's Superman which is where we get Superman from, by the way, as a cartoon character. But the transhuman man is no different than the Superman that came out of Germany in, in the 30s and 40s. And so uh, nothing is new here. Concept is the same. It's just expressed in a different way. Transhumanism is the idea for Klaus Schwab of those type of people that he wants to live in a restructured world. Uh, that implies, by the way, that those of us who belong to the old world, as the new world is created, we are not suitable, we are not compatible with this new machinery of the transformed world. So we need to be transformed ourselves to live in this new world. And I want to say that Hitler's, uh, just in passing, I'm not an expert on, on Hitler or World War II necessarily at all, but I want to point out that Hitler was very pointed about this, that, that the Superman, the super race that he intended to create, was that race that would inhabit his so-called thousand-year Reich. Those would be the ones that would enter in to that thousand-year Reich to populate the world and reform the whole thing from, you know, from, from ground zero all the way up to outer space, I guess. So nothing, again, nothing has really changed here. But now... We have, uh, you know, people coming out of the World Economic Forum. You can see this, uh, this lady here, uh, Ida, is a member of parliament in Denmark. And she's speaking at a World Economic Forum uh, background there. You can see with a potted plant behind her head. It's probably appropriate here. But she says, welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Well, you see, this is the whole vision of Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, the, 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 the technocrats, the Trilateral Commission, and the whole bunch of them, this global elite. This is their idea today, that the world will be so transformed that you will be stripped down to own nothing, including not just the physical things, not mind you, but privacy as well. The last bastion of privacy is your mind, the thoughts that you think. They want that too. It's not just that they want our property, but they want the very thinking process that we have that goes on the side of our brain. And she, of course, says with great Pollyannish proclaim, life has never been better. Well, I have news for her. She really thinks that life has never been better. It's only because she has a giant vacuum in that pretty little blonde head that just cannot process thoughts. There's no way you can be happy unless you've been thoroughly brainwashed and, you know, from the inside out by having nothing, no privacy, et cetera. But you also may not have any ownership over your own body because as time goes on, 
these genetic firms, genetic engineering firms, are claiming patent rights, intellectual rights over their own creation. So it may well be that uh, when you say, I own nothing, yes, you own nothing. You have no physical external things, but you own no physical internal things either. And I want to close with this slide because this really kind of sums it up where, where this has come, and it's very pointed. This is on Moderna's website. I published the whole picture here so that you can go and look at it yourself. Just go to Moderna's website, go to their About Us page, and you will see this. Welcome to Moderna. We believe messenger RNA, that's mRNA, the precursor to making proteins, the template for making proteins in your body, is the software of life. The software of life. What do we do to software? Well, we engineer software. We constantly want to improve software. We release new versions of software when it comes, you know, when we make these modifications. And very often, of course, we go through the debugging process where, uh, where we correct problems that crop up. Um, and, you know, life goes on. The software of life, they say. Well, the software of life mentality applied to human beings is exactly what we're seeing right now. And if anybody can't, if anybody does not understand the context of this about page right here is about us, they're just either can't reason, have no logical capabilities whatsoever. But this is probably one of the most telling and frightening comments that you could ever see on a vaccine may or excuse me, on a whatever you call it, not vaccine, but it's, uh, you know, the messenger RNA injection. This would be the scariest thing you could possibly see because the software of life means that since life is in humans, in their view, they're not, they're not inoculating seeds or fish or animals, they're inoculating humans. The software of life now has become the play field of the global elite we're trying to create a humanity that will enter into their own thousand year Reich, if you will. And this is exactly what we saw before in history. The names have changed. The sophistication of presentation has changed, but the underlying ideology principles, et cetera, and goals have not changed. So I will say thank you to that at that, and I will stop the share on my screen. And if we have some Q&A, that would be fine. But uh, that's, uh, that's the, the, the information that I wanted to put out today. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, at first glance, this is another, to me, this is another instance of their using euphemisms in order to stand things on its head. Biodiversity, as I learned from your presentation, is really nothing else but gaining full control over humans everything else is pretty much in their view at least under their control now over humans with the help of the pharmaceutical and uh, biotechnology biotechnological industry my question is is it is this not clear enough for people to see or why has there not been an outcry at least from the churches because this is what they should consider someone trying to play god yes they should and this is playing God. Um, you know, almost everything in the world today that these people look at, living things, when they say we can do better, 
Uh, and by the way, that's a phrase you hear at the World Economic Forum, we can do better, build back better. Yeah. We can do better. That indicates, and of course, they don't believe in intelligent design in the first place, but those who do will say, well, these people uh, are, believe that whatever whatever God might have created, if, if, if they believe in God as an intelligent designer, um, he was really screwed up. He's just, he's all messed up. He, he goofed up. He, he, he just came, he did it wrong. We can do better. We can fix those problems that he seeded into the system and we can, we can create a life that we want to live on planet earth. And when transhumanists start talking, by the way, about eternal life, it gets really spooky because they're looking for technology to advance to the point where they can literally become immortal. And they say that openly. Max Moore has written about this extensively. And so this is not just a, transi a transient thing. Like, you know, our goal is just, well, we want to cure heart disease or something. No, that's not it. That's part of it maybe. But the ultimate goal is immortality, which of course God has something to say about <laughs> in the Bible, at least that, uh, you know, that, uh, that it's appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. Well, everybody's died so far on planet Earth that's lived. They think they're going to be the first group of people that don't die, that will live on in the computer or on an avatar or maybe just their own body if they can keep fixing it up and, you know, putting it together with bailing wire. Yeah, he heaven has become the cloud. <laughs> that's right. Heaven is a cloud. I would like to ask you, so the, the jabs that we're currently seeing being applied, they don't seem to improve the health of people, so, um, but rather cause problems. So is this part of like, do you think this might be like a, uh, you know, I, I see three options. I mean, they could serve um, um, as like a means to claim um, like patent rights, like with these individuals, you know, maybe with like this MRNR injected. I mean, that's maybe one option. The other options are these the ones that are not going to be part of the crowd that's going to be immortal or rather disappear rather quickly. Or is this maybe like part of a larger scheme that you first, um, whatever, like, um, uh, you know, apply this stuff at the moment, but we don't know, don't know what's really in it. And then they add something else that puts them into this realm of them becoming like improved, better, immortal. What's your take yeah. on that? Yeah. Well, not being a scientist, I just disclaimer, not being a scientist, not being a medical doctor, just uh, just a person that's looking at this whole thing like you all are. <clears throat> um, if the if this shot is not improving the health of people, and it, it clearly is not, that you've already documented that very well. If the purpose of the injection is not to strengthen the immune system specifically, uh, and if even the incidental outcomes have been serious injuries to people all over the world from having taken the injection, then I, I would say if it was their stated goal that they wanted to improve the health of people, they have utterly failed to do so. That indicates that there's another reason that there's another agenda for these things. Just clear, it's just clear as crystal that there's some other agenda that they have behind the scenes that has nothing to do with improving the health of people. Even though they have to have an excuse for that needle to go into the arm in order to inject the messenger RNA. And, and now in India, there's the DNA uh, vaccine that's being uh, produced, right? So people that say, oh, RNA doesn't affect DNA. 
listen, if you think it's going to stop at RNA, you're crazy. It's already gone beyond that. It's gone to straight DNA injections under the skin by an Indian pharmaceutical company. And I see one person nodding their head here is probably from India. And it's absolutely true. They're going after the genome of the human condition. And I don't think this has anything to do with the promise of, oh, we're going to make life better for you because, you know, you know, the United Nations has a habit of this. When they, there's 17 sustainable development goals that say that it's going to transform the world. The first thing they start out with, well, we're going to eliminate poverty everywhere. Oh, really? That, that's some grandiose promise. It's never been done. And we're, we're poorer. The world is poorer now than it was in 1992. And all the other promises they make on the front end of it, oh, we're going to have jobs for everyone, jobs with dignity, and oh, we're going to have lifelong education opportunities, and everybody's going to have a home to live in, too. All these promises that they've made were vacuous, absolutely vacuous. They, they meant nothing, and they were not true, and they have not come true, and they cannot deliver on those promises ever. Now we have the same scenario working out with this, with this shot. They're promising that it's going to strengthen your immune system, that it's going to prevent the disease from getting a hold of you and, and your body. And it hasn't happened. It's been a false promise. And that, again, that indicates that there is another agenda at work here that has nothing to do with the health of humans, much less that the United Nations ever intended really to eliminate poverty in the world. They did not intend to eliminate poverty. It was just propaganda. And I would say the whole propaganda that these vaccines, these shots are gonna completely you know, save the whole world from this ugly, terrible virus, it's just, it's absolutely vacuous. It's not true, it's propaganda. My guess is they know exactly what they're talking about. And as they produce the propaganda, they know it's propaganda. Thanks. I have a question. Thank you, Mr. Wood, for your excellent presentation. It sounds to me that they are trying to assume the role of playing God uh, when they're talking about a takeover of our evolutionary process. Uh, and, and I was struck by the uh, analogy to software and what you need to do to software, continually update it. You've got to re- you know, have your 2.0, 3.0, human 2.0. And it seems to me that these injections will never stop until we get what they're doing and that the masses say no more. And that this seems to have been a large experiment to see how many people would capitulate with the fear mongering that they did, the lies that they have. Basically, because there's been no informed consent, but coerced people into lining up voluntarily, they think, for these shots. And it's not, do you think it'll, it'll ever stop? Well, it so can't stop. Shots. That's right. a great question. It cannot stop. And I'll tell you why it cannot stop. It may be a little bit oblique to what you would think initially, but once you've been injected with this, it's, it's obvious that your immune system is being changed. Uh, maybe not the same in every case, but the immune system is changed when you take a series of these shots. That means that as future viruses come down the road, whatever they might be, man-made or not, doesn't matter. Whenever future viruses come down the road, your natural immunity now has been messed up by these shots. 
And if you want to be saved from that new ugly virus coming down the line someday and people are really dying, you know, in serious numbers around the world, you will have no choice but to take another shot to maybe, you know, eliminate or, you know, take you out of harm's way. There'd be no end to it on that basis alone. There'd be no end to it. And that's, in my mind, that's perfectly logical. They so debased the natural immunity of the world that the world is basically now immunocompromised. The whole, the whole lot of it that have taken the shots are immunocompromised. Now, you know, instead of just, you know, I'm thinking back to, to, the, to the whole AIDS debacle, uh, where the only way they treated AIDS for a long time was with this giant cocktail of drugs, they called it. <laughs> They'd mix like you know, a whole bunch of different things together. It would cost a fortune to get these this cocktail of drugs and they said well that'll beat back the hiv virus in your body well thank you i guess you know maybe it did to some people i didn't have AIDS, so i don't have a clue i wasn't close to the community but the same kind of thing mentality is working now in the future if you want to be out of harm's way on getting this this maybe horrible virus that might be floating around someday you're going to be at the mercy of the of anybody on the outside that has something to stick into your body to give you some kind of temporary immunity to it. And I think, you know, that's got to be in their mind here. Once the conduit into your arm is established, there really is no logical stopping point. Even if you rebelled five years down the road and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'll never take a shot again. Well, that's fine. But you may well die prematurely because you do contract some virus, but you have no natural immunity to withhold, to withstand it. Unfortunate. Thank you. Hi. Uh, good evening, uh, Mr. Wood. Sorry, Rajini, you can go before me. Sorry, I didn't. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that, Desmond. Say it again. As you wish, Dexter. As you wish. If you want to go first, go first. No, As... please go first. Thanks, Virginie. You can proceed, Virginie. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you, sir, for your testimony. It was really important. Uh, I would like to, to uh, illustrate and make links with our perpetrators. You spoke about the seeds. And so uh, I would like to raise a point. It was uh, about the, the bunker of the apocalypse uh, on February uh, 28th of uh, 2008. The Salvabad Global Sea Vault was officially inaugurated. Uh, it's an underground vault on the Norwegian island of Spietersbergen, intended to keep seeds of all the food crops of the planet. And who organized that? They said in the article, Norwegian government, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Dupont Pioni Hybrid, Syngenta, the Rockefeller, Sejier Monsanto, the Global Crop Diversity Trust, and uh, a French organization said they are skeptical sorry, about the reason of the creation of this bunker. Indeed, the funders of the project are all part of seed industry lobbies whose current policy is not oriented towards more biodiversity, but on the contrary, seek to reduce access to current living genetic resources and contribute to their annihilation and so on. 
So I think it illustrates very well what you you are you were explaining about uh, biodiversity and uh, uh, intellectual property. And the second point, it was not a question, <laughs> but the second point is also to illustrate what you said, because Professor Peter McCulloch explained uh, yesterday that in a scientific um, uh, study, Alden and all, Lund University, Sweden, that confirms one of our, our worst fears, and I'm reading what he says, the exogenous genetic material coding for the dangerous spike protein is reverse transcribed into the human genome. Possible long-term constitutive expression, synthesis of disease promoting lethal spike. So it's exactly what you said. It's a scientific study published February 25. So it's it's yesterday, and it's wow. exactly what you said, and it's very concerning. Yeah, you know, I remember when I first read about the seed bank up in the in the ice in the north. And it was a little disturbing at first. And I thought, well, maybe that makes sense, you know, that we should kind of store these these heritage seeds, they're called. That's the original seeds before they were modified, right? And so as they modified all these seeds and spread them around the world, they realized that there, there could be a doomsday scenario situation here where it caused real trouble. So they took samples of all of the heritage seeds, that's the untouched seeds, and those are the ones that went up to the, the seed vault. It just kind of occurs to me, I, I have no proof of this and I haven't read up on it, but I think I will based on what you just said, Virginie, because uh, I wonder if they're storing uh, sperm and eggs up there as well now for humans, you know, just kind of based on the whole thing. Well, maybe we should preserve some original human DNA. And the seed bank up there with all the other seeds. That's just speculation, but it just crossed my mind. Well, considering considering that, um, I'm sorry, Virginie, considering that uh, Bill Gates uh, is or was uh, closely aligned with Jeffrey Epstein, it is. I, I don't think it's far-fetched, your conclusion. <laughs> I know. Well, we, we for, for the case, for the, for the, uh, for the purposes of this particular conference, I know we, we have plenty of facts to stick to, mm -hmm. and there may be some more facts that come up in the near future, but uh, I'll tell you, just the case as it is right now is, is very damning, yeah. and it, it needs specific, I know it needs specific investigation on you know some very fine points. Mm -hmm. We've got the basic theory down pretty well, and it's gonna be even, even more as you get the rest of the speakers here, but the, the, the theory is good. Most, some of the particulars are already on the table, but now we have an avenue to get in to the, to the absolute um, uh, smallest, finest part of this, where, where these conspiracies actually took place mm -hmm. and where they actually wrote about this thing. So there needs to be probably a, a host of, um, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests I, that applies at least in America, if not in some other countries, to flesh out some of these emails and some of these conversations and tapes and recordings and et cetera that might have taken place over the time to really find 
not just the smoking gun, but the, the spent bullet as well. Yeah. Mr. Hood, thank you so much for your evidence. Um, I have noted today your evidence is much more focused on uh, the conference for the United Nations that took place in 1992 at uh, Rio, in Rio, uh, de Janeiro, Brazil. So what I want to find out from you, uh, Mr. Hood, since 1992 to date, has there been any major biotechnological advancements in relation to humanity? Can you think of any major advancements besides now that we're talking about the mRNA vaccines? Well, as far as advancements, uh, do you mean uh, positive advancements or... Yeah. Or positive negative. No positive. Okay. Well, you know, there must be, there may be some incidental positive enhancements that have taken place, and I say incidental because maybe it wasn't even intended in the first place, or they just did it by accident. But the overwhelming majority at this point, and my, this is just my opinion, the overwhelming majority of genetic modification that has been done has resulted in negative outcomes. In other words, it hasn't helped anything. It hasn't helped the ecosystem. It hasn't helped, you know, uh, uh, you know, people. I'm, I'm thinking back when when corn was first uh, modified, genetically modified. There was a big scare in America where all of a sudden people started buying tortilla chips off the, you know, in the grocery store, right? In big bags made out of corn. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, people were having violent reactions and having to go into hospital and stuff because this corn was making them sick because it was genetically modified. Now, why couldn't they have figured that out before they threw it into a store and started making as much money as they could off of it? Well, maybe they could have, but they didn't. And there have been negative outcomes like that, 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 you know, are just all over the landscape. I, I wish I could find some more positive trends, but I just can't, I can't find them. Okay. So will you then say, will your evidence then be to the extent when it comes to this COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, will you actually regard it as uh, the most advanced biotechnological advancement, specifically when it comes to humanity to date? Absolutely. <clears throat> this, is the, this is the holy grail of transhumanism here. It is the holy grail. This is the holy grail, by the way, that, that Adolf Hitler had before, too. I mean, he had the same idea. He just didn't have the means to get there. <laughs> okay. So um, I want to quickly just reflect back to the evidence that, that we currently have and which has actually been presented to the grand jury to date. And for that, I actually make specific reference to uh, Professor Antonetta Getty. And I quickly just want to put um, the jury into perspective here. She's got a, a doctor in experimental physics uh, at the University of uh, Bologna, which is uh, Italy. She's got a PhD in biomedical technologies, uh, bioengineering at the Faculty of uh, Medicine of the University of Bologna, India, I mean, uh, Italy. So what I want to focus on is specifically her evidence and basically tied in with the biotechnological advancements, technocracy, that's basically your evidence that you have given previously. You've actually re-emphasized a technocracy, basically just bringing it in line more with uh, a biotechnology. So the evidence that we currently, that has actually been presented to uh, uh, um, that will be the jury, and I'm quickly just going to make reference 
this is the very first time that nanoparticles has been used in medicine. This product is dangerous, products is dangerous. The body cannot counteractive these particulars, particles, and these particles can create a magnetic field. Can create a magnetic field. It's the first time that nanoparticles has actually been found in medicine. So just with that two specific issues, and that is the evidence that we have uh, uh, presented to the jury. Well, that is that all in line with your uh, biotechnological advancement, your evidence, technocracy, is that in line? Yes, it is. And you remember the chart that I just presented about NBIC. The NBIC stood for nano, first off, the N stood for nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is the manipulation of matter using uh, external means. That is, you know, we think of maybe getting a hammer and a saw to build a building or a house, but uh, in nanotechnology, you're talking about uh, being able to artificially uh, put atoms together in different configurations and making up different types of, you know, different types of, of matter or devices or whatever. And uh, this has been experimented in universities for a long time now. Um, as I say, probably 15, 20 years that technology is advancing where where a computer, for instance, can actually change the structure of something remotely by issuing commands and stuff to it. Um, so this this goes hand in hand with biotechnology. That's what I'm saying. Okay, the, the two disciplines are combined in the universities. Would they think to use that in today's uh, injections? I don't know why not. You know, so it seemed to be perfectly compatible with the science that's out there that they've been working with for years. So then in conclusion, Mr. Wood, you have actually also now stated with my evidence, uh, this all comes down to the NBIC. So squarely, when we look at even what Moderna has said, and you have actually presented evidence, and in a matter of fact, uh, it is common knowledge, and it is evidence that can be admitted uh, uh, into this grand jury proceedings. And that is when Moderna made the statement that uh, it is mRNA is the software of life, which means it can be hacked. So um, in conclusion, you can basically just say yay or nay. Um, this clearly actually fits in with what they've actually planned in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. And this is basically now where we are at in the fulfillment of the manifestation of the uh, technocracy uh, plan and agenda that is being played out in each and every country in the world. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I have one final uh, short question. So do you think, um, because we you just mentioned that you only see like destructive or like like only accidental positive developments with regards to the um, the bioengineering or like uh, GMO aspect. So do you think they're keeping all this maybe positive um, outcomes from us? Maybe they have something in their, you know, up the sleeves that's really positive or are they are they basically like in a complete denial that it's not working and they're not going to be immortal or no one is going to be immortal because if they don't have the technologies at hand? Right. That's a good question. I'm not sure that they care whether there's positive or negative outcomes in a sense, but um, the the overwhelming uh, 
evidence at this point, and, and as I, from my view, is that that uh, evidence of harm is being hidden, not evidence of success. They would have every reason to put out evidence of success right now, tangible success, to convince people these, this really works, but they can't do it. What they're hiding is all of the injuries that are happening, the data, and I mean, in almost in every agency, there's been scandals already where, where data is discovered months later that was not released, intentionally not released, because it, it, uh, it would taint their narrative. Uh, so I think the evidence points the other way. They're hiding the bad data, mm -hmm. but they just don't have any good data to put out there. That makes perfect sense, Patrick. Because this is one of the one of the things that we seem to be seeing through the evidence that's been presented to this grand jury is uh, vaccine-induced immunity doesn't even exist in these cases because there is no immunity. On the other hand, natural immunity is perfect. How can they deny this? I suppose that you will not uh, object to the conclusion that the only thing that they're doing right now is lying to us in order to keep us from understanding that they can't do what they promised to do. That's exactly right. And I and I just back up a little further, whatever they promised to do in the first, in the first, very first instance at the very beginning of this, whatever they promised that they would do, most likely was a lie from the start. They never had any intention or ability to produce what they said they were going to produce. My guess is they knew that perfectly well at the time. Well, that needs to be proven, but I think that's that's kind of the logical way to look at it, that they knew they were lying from the get-go, yeah. and they intentionally deceived people into doing something that they would not have otherwise done. That's the nature of propaganda anyway. We, we ought to know something about propaganda after 100 years of it. Yeah. <laughs> We've had nothing but nonstop propaganda from the get-go. And I wouldn't believe anything that if I can determine that a piece has propaganda in it and, and it is a propaganda piece, I'll throw the whole cotton picking thing out. I just, I rip it up in shreds and throw it away. I don't, I don't want to pollute my mind. But they said from the beginning, oh, we're going to, we are going to prevent the disease from getting into your body. That's what they said, point blank. And just the opposite has happened. That meant, I mean, how can a scientist be so stupid to think? that they could get away saying something like that, have any evidence behind it. It's just, it was untested. It didn't pass anybody's regimen of, you know, FDA approval or anywhere else. And yet they could say it's going to be 95% effective. You won't get the disease if you take the shot. Ball face lie. It's completely false. Yeah, that's, I suppose, the only conclusion we can draw from this. So if they're lying about this, there's got to be some other objective out there. Thank That's you. Exactly right. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, Virginie? You're, you're muted. muted. You're on mute. Sorry. So I can have that the Bill Gates Foundation uh, with the UN. It was with Kofi Annan at, at the beginning. I've been developing a GMO farm for several years in Africa now, and they developed GMO corn. Uh, to vaccinate through food and make people sterile. So they started to do that in Africa. Yes, and did. we have this concern also with these uh, gene therapy uh, injections. Yeah, yeah. Also. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Patrick. Um, let's see if we can dig a little deeper. Um, let's hear what uh, Matthew Eret has to say. Uh, yes, thank you uh, for inviting me onto this esteemed panel. And thank you, Patrick, for going through that very important briefing. Um, just keying off of some of the, the elements of what you touched upon, and I know that the time is very much limited. I'll try my, my very best to keep it within 20 minutes, as we discussed. Um, the figure of Maury Strong amidst this entire thing is, I think, a, a very interesting uh, introduction for a lot of people. It's a figure who, in many ways, was the godfather of the modern Green New Deal, the thing that is behind uh, or integrated with the Agenda 2030, the fit, uh, what is it called, the uh, Farm to Fork program to try to bring in a Monsanto GMO program for Europe um, <clears throat> as part of a decarbonization strategy. Um, which is also tied to a variety of other insane policies. When you actually look at a lot of what these governments of the transatlantic are being told they have to do in order to decarbonize according to these computer models that say we simply must do this by 2030 or 2050 um, in order to save nature, you're like, well, the effect will be massive death and the inability to sustain human life, let alone life in general. So either it's incompetent or there is an intention behind it uh, to get that effect. And I would say when you look at the evidence, the intention is indeed uh, discoverable. And people who say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, conspiracy theories discredit you immediately. All they're saying is I've been brainwashed to think that anybody who says that intentions and ideas are causal are, uh, are, are insane. And I must turn off my brain and stop thinking. Um, there's been a lot of work to get people to, to do this. Um, so indeed, there are intentions, you can know bad intentions, you can know bad ideas, but you have to think on a very different level than that which our system conditions us to think on. Maury Strong was not only one of the key organizers of the Rio Summit, the Agenda 2030, he was also a co-founder of the World Economic Forum and a, a Secretary General of the first uh, United Nations Conference on the Environment and Population in 1972. Very important character. Um, who was also president of the Rockefeller Foundation in his time, head of the World Bank, like one of these just key technocrats who's just installed to get things done as a sort of hitman. Um, he said in a 1990 interview, uh, what if a small group of world leaders were to conclude that the principal risk to the earth comes from the actions of the rich countries? And if the world is to survive, those rich countries would have to sign an agreement reducing their impact on the environment. Will they do it? I'm quoting him here. The group's conclusion is no, the rich countries won't do it. They won't change. So in order to save the planet, the group decides, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrial civilizations collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring it about? And this is from West Magazine in 1990, where he's actually, he says in a later interview, I think with Glenn Beck, he says, oh, but I was just talking about a fictitious book I, I was thinking about writing. He's literally, if you read the context of that interview, he's literally describing a World Economic Forum uh, conference that uh, is taking place. And, and this is something he's musing upon. Um, and again, I think when you look at his actions, what he was a part of also as a vice president of the World Wildlife Fund uh, under Prince Philip uh, for several years um, and a variety of things. His whole life's devotion has been to get getting institutions and practices in place that actually accomplish exactly what he's saying right there in that statement. Um, I put together a few slides with a few quotes uh, that I would like to share right now to get across the nature of eugenics. Um, I might have to blast through this a little faster than I would want to, but whatever. 
Um, so how the unthinkable became thinkable behind it is an image from a 1930s uh, pro-eugenics propaganda poster called Release the Stranglehold of Hereditary Disease and Unfitness. Um, who determines what unfitness is, is that's what people don't like talking about. Um, this was a big deal. Eugenics was the science of population control and, and selective breeding to create, as Patrick pointed out, a new race, an ubermension race, kind of like in a chain uh, Superman that would take the, uh, the reins, the helm of the chaotic flow of evolution into a controlled, scientifically managed way while breeding out the unfit, those who are undesirable. Usually you'll find many of these people like Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, the Eugenic Society of Britain and America, uh, they usually tend to focus on the darker skin races, but of course they're not discriminatory overall uh, when it comes to killing off the unfit. The context in which eugenics as a science, which I'll go into, came about is important. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, there was a, a, a very strong scientific and cultural optimism that was alive and spreading around the idea that hum the human mind was a natural phenomenon. The thing that causes us to make discoveries and translate those discoveries into new technologies um, that benefit and uh, improve the quality of life of citizens and also of nature by greening deserts, for example. Uh, this was an idea that was a very strong paradigm, but certain imperialists didn't agree with it because they viewed the there's a fact of overpopulation. Overpopulation always happens. But why is today's population constraints different from what it was 100 years ago or 1000 years ago? It's this question of scientific and technological progress. Um, the two ways, the two approaches to deal with population crises when people exceed the ability to support that the those people is to either one, do what the British Empire had already been doing before the days of eugenics, which is simply impose, uh, induce artificial wars, induce famines, uh, induce disease, whatever the case may be. And there, there on the left is a, a picture of some of the terrible uh, effects of British imperial policy in India. Controlled starvations, again, was a, a part of the British imperial game as a one world empire that was dominant before throughout the 19th century and even 18th century. Uh, what they did to the Irish in the potato famine is another example of that. And that, that was done under an idea of a scientifically managed system using certain mathematical, uh, what they thought were mathematical principles of population control. The other way of dealing with excess population is not killing people to satisfy the limit, but rather encourage, as I said, new discoveries. This is an image, a, a, uh, an etching from the uh, 1876 Centennial uh, Conference, a Centennial Celebration in the United States and Philadelphia, celebrating the new discoveries that were emerging uh, and spreading from the United States to Germany, Russia, and beyond, countries adopting protectionism, long-term credit, and the idea, again, of defining economics not around worshipping money, but rather uh, uplifting people from squalor and giving people, creating new sources of wealth by doing this, new inventions, new discoveries. So again, the, the Malthusian, the, the term Malthus uh, or Malthusianism, which is what Maury Strong helped revive in the early uh, 70s, late 60s, uh, came from the simplistic theories of a British East India Company economist who taught at the British Empire's Haleybury College, training generations of imperial economists, Thomas Malthus. And he observed that population grows arithmetically, food production grows geometric, or sorry, <laughs> food, uh, people grow geometrically, 
on average, while food production only grows arithmetically and thus social engineers can forecast using mathematical formulas where you will have a population crisis and then act preemptively as Malthus even describes in gut-wrenching detail in his 1799 essays on the principle of population to uh, encourage the death of the useless, of the poor, um, even babies who are deemed unfit. He says the parishes should stop supporting to make way for um, for other, uh, anyway, it's, it's gory. And he has prescriptions on doing that and it is done. The idea is always that the, the nat- nature and resources are relatively limited. Um, you cannot create new resources. You cannot. He does not factor in the quality of the human mind to, to transform and upshift the environment by new, introducing a new discovery like electricity. That doesn't exist in his equations. That's actually disruptive to his equations. Um, this is added to by people like John Stuart Mill, who includes the idea of the diminishing rate of returns. That system is just human economies are just constantly in tension where the strong are and the most fit are better able to control the diminishing rates of returns while the weak are uh, subdued by the strong, the imperialists. Charles Darwin in his autobiography, you know, people wonder where does this theory of natural selection come from that was then applied by the eugenicists on a social scale, the thing that described the the fossil records and the flow of life um, in evolution. So that the Darwinian interpretation of evolution, his model of natural selection, he got, as he describes in his autobiography, by reading, he says, in 1838, 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I had happened to read for amusement, Malthus on population, and began and being prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence, which everywhere goes on from long continued observation of the habits of animals and plants. It at once struck me that under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved and unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result would be the formation of a new species. Here then I had at last got a theory by which to work. Charles Darwin. So Darwin is is saying that this is the source of his discovery of the mechanism of what causes these creative mutations to introduce new qualities in species. Um, defined around an idea of number one, randomness, that ultimately the, the mutations are absolutely random and thus unknowable by virtue of their randomness. Number two, gradualism, that there are no creative leaps in the that are possible. And indeed, that's a problem because in the fossil records, we don't see gradualism. We see, in fact, a lot of creative leaps, much as we see um, with human economies and human societies introducing new ideas. You don't have a gradual you don't gradually come to a new discovery. You have it in a eureka flash. And the effect is when you apply it, an ability to, as a quantum leap, sustain much more people at a higher quality of life. Um, if you have a certain type of society that is not based upon uh, this disgusting view of human beings as, as sort of just talking cattle. Coming out of this, uh, Darwin, um, Darwin's cousin, uh, Francis Galton, is somebody who converts Darwin. Darwin at first has a problem with the application socially of his views into the science of eugenics, but Darwin later writes to Galton saying, you've made a disciple out of me. And Galton has a, is a, is a fellow basically says, okay, using the Mendelian science of genetics, using certain Malthusian uh, concepts of population growth, um, we can now formulate the queen of all sciences, the best of all social sciences. And he says in 1904, Eugenics must be introduced into the national conscience like a new religion. It has indeed strong claims to become an orthodox religious tenet for the future. 
for eugenics cooperate with the workings of nature by securing that humanity shall be represented by the fittest races. I see no impossibility in eugenics becoming a religious dogma among mankind. And this is so important that these, this was always the design and the intention, even when Thomas Huxley was organizing the X Club, of which uh, Darwin was a, a fundamental part in his theories. The idea was in 1865 with this X Club, around which uh, Galton later emerged, was to take representatives of all branches of uh, sciences, mathematics, biology, astronomy, sociology, and unify them into trying to create a unified science around mathematics and imposing a mathematical cage of description upon all branches of science, giving it sort of a, um, an appearance of science, but no more discoveries. Because real discoveries happen when you press upon the limits of the unknown beyond which mathematics, the language of mathematics that is always evolving, cannot venture, right? Mathematics is useful, but it's like a language that changes in conformity with our discoveries of the laws of the universe. There's no end to that process. So they wanted to basically take that relationship and, and put mathematics in the dominant position where people's minds would be would say, oh, if the mathematics that already exists doesn't describe it, I can't know it and you shouldn't know it either. And this is something which, again, Thomas Huxley was assigned to do. This is what Galton, um, with his idea of a queen of all sciences, the new religion, uh, was driving towards. And it did become, in, a, in many ways, a dominant science of all sciences. Between uh, up until World War II, uh, we had 32 American states, starting with Indiana in 1907, adopt eugenics policies of sterilizing the unfit. Um, two Canadian provinces, BC and Alberta, thousands, thousands of people were sterilized based upon what? A statistical probabilistic science. It was fundamentally statistical that if your, your mother, your grandfather, your, your great-grandfather had low IQs or had a criminal record, they would say, oh, it is statistically likely that your children or unborn grandchildren will also have low IQs or criminal tendencies. And thus, using that statistical probability, we can preemptively... Uh, now sterilize you and justify it scientifically. Um, and that was part of what drove, again, all of these things to happen before uh, Germany, before Ernst Rudin, who also received Rockefeller funding and Macy Foundation funding uh, to do this eugenic science in Germany. It just so happened that Germany had a political uh, type of government funded, again, by Wall Street and London uh, financiers uh, that was very good at bypassing those democratic uh, protocols that would normally be resistant to that type of uh, embrace of something so anti-human as eugenics and the breeding out of the unfit, which didn't just target Jews, right? It, it, I mean, Poles, unfit Germans, people know the horrors of the Nazi T4 program that killed hundreds of thousands of Jews, uh, sorry, of Germans who were deemed just to be not worthy of life. They're, they were too expensive to maintain. So when the Nazi machine, that Frankenstein monster blew up and collapsed, there was a, a need to reorganize. The, those who actually brought us fascism and eugenics were never punished in Nuremberg, and that's very important. So among those figures who was assigned the task of reorganizing the grand strategy for recapturing nations that had just defeated fascism in the, in the post-World War II era, we have none other than Ju Sir Thomas Huxley's uh, grandson, Sir Julian Huxley, who becomes the creator of UNESCO, the United Nations Education, Science and Cultural Organization, where he writes in its manifesto 
that the moral for UNESCO is clear. The task laid upon it of promoting peace and security can never be wholly realized through the means assigned to it, education, science, and culture. It must envisage some form of world political unity, whether through a single world government or otherwise, as the only certain means of avoiding war. Of course, they don't say that uh, it is his, you know, Anglo-American oligarchical networks that funded the war to begin with, which never should have happened. They all treat it like, oh, no, the war was a natural consequence of having sovereign nation states. That's what they just naturally in a Darwinian fight for survival, they are wired to want more and suppress weaker nations and impose their hegemony. That's the nature of man. That's the nature of nation states. And thus we need a solution. Now, of course, again, they, they always avoid the fact that you have these artists, these financiers from JP Morgan, the Brown brothers, Harriman uh, banking houses funding these things and assassinating leaders who are not to their liking artificially to bring about these political effects. So they don't talk about that. But then they say, like he does, it, um, it, as the only means of avoiding war, we need a single world government. In its educational program, it can stress the ultimate need for a world political unity and familiarize all peoples with the implications of the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world organization, all for peace, of course. And keep in mind, he's also the head of the eugenic society. <laughs> he's not just, uh, you know, just the head of UNESCO. He is the president of the eugenic society of Britain, um, which becomes later on the Galton Foundation, by the way, very much today integrated with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi. Uh, Whitney Webb goes through this in her, in her impeccable research. Uh, but he says a little bit later on, still in that same founding document, that at the moment it is probable that the indirect effect of civilization is dysgenic instead of eugenic, that is getting worse instead of getting better genetically. And in any case, it seems likely that the dead weight of genetic stupidity, physical weakness, mental instability, and disease proneness, which already exist in the human species, will prove too great a burden for real progress to be achieved. Thus, even though it is quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, that is because people got to see the effects of it, you know, once Hitler lost and people got to see globally what the logical consequence of doing this really is and they were naturally horrified so their minds were being a respectable science um so it is psychologically impossible for many years it will be important for unesco to see that the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed on the issues at stake so that much that it is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable and so the question then becomes, what did he do? In what way does he repackage eugenics and call it something else to get similar, the same effects as were desired by those leading Thula society, society Nazis and their, uh, their London and Wall Street financiers? So let's look at some of the, the key points of what he does. Keep in mind, all the way up until 1962, he is the president of the British Eugenics Society. Uh, 1962, <laughs> uh, 1947, he founds the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the world's biggest, most powerful uh, conservation organization that is designed to shift the values of society. Um, in also 1947, he helped set up with uh, G. Uh, Brock Kisholm, a uh, Tavistockian Canadian psychiatrist, um, the World Health Organization. Kisholm is a devout world governmentalist. He writes about it. He calls for the need to cleanse society of the belief in family or nation state. 
uh, and religion. He, he thinks that that's the cause of men mental unhealth. And he says that uh, one quote I just picked out from uh, Kissholm is the reinterpretation and eventual eradication of the concept of right and wrong, which has been the basis of child training, the substitution of intelligent and rational thinking, scientific thinking, for, for faith in the certainties of old people. These are the belated objectives of practically all effective psychotherapy. Basically, he's ba saying that real psychotherapy, the purpose of the science of mind going forward and mental health should be to liberate us from the belief in right and wrong and the traditions of old people that are obsolete in, in favor of logical thinking. Um, so this is part of a atomization program of the baby boomer generation, especially who are targeted, those growing up after World War II, who are going to be subjected to a new type of conditioning, a new type of educational and cultural experience that will detach them, their identities from these broader problems of nation state, religion, religious and, and cultural heritage. That makes them more easy to predict. And you know that they will tend to do things that are predictable, like herd themselves into groupthink more easily instead of st stand on their own. Later on, Julian Huxley co-terms the, uh, the science of transhumanism, uh, gives it that label. And, uh, and around that, there's an idea of a cybernetic scientific management of society around certain ideas that emerged after World War II. He then goes on and co-founds the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. Remember that, that organization that uh, I mentioned, Maury Strong was also vice president of, um, alongside Prince Philip and Prince Bernhard, um, two devout Malthusians. Now the new ethical paradigm, as I write here, it moves from the fringe increasingly into the mainstream, designed around the shifting of saving nature, basically saying that instead of having an ethic of saving humanity from empire and, and slavery and scarcity, no, 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 that's the old wisdom. The new wisdom will be saving nature from humanity. The way that they do this, utilizing the development of digital uh, binary computer systems and modeling is to try to say, okay, we're gonna assume that all of ecology, all of humanity, and even all of the universe, cosmology even, um, is going to be something you could chart using linear systems in computer models, using very simplified variables that will then allow us to predict everything that will ever happen and everything that could ever happen with presumed assumptions like uh, the natural state being equilibrium, stasis, no change. That is what they said is now natural. Um, so this is a, an example on the left and on the right. We already saw the Malthusian population uh, model um, this is the, the Limits to Growth Club of Rome neo-Malthusian model that emerged out of the, uh, the MIT studies of Forrester and Meadows, funded by the Club of Rome and Canadian funding under Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, actually, um, that basically just added a few more variables, but still justified the same thing, that every time you have more people, you have more pollution, and thus more problems, more destroyed environment, and thus the uh, enlightened social engineers should always, to scientifically manage society, ensure that populations are as natural as the unchanging environment. So that we have to, if we're, if we're overpopulated, we have to constrict that population to something of what became called carrying capacity. That the, the mathematical carrying capacity of what exists now is all that could exist, is all that we should permit. And thus, new discoveries also became problematic. Discoveries in the atom, discoveries in space technology, discoveries that actually solve and cure problems, those became things that would cause disequilibrium because you haven't 
those who have monopolized those fixed resources and fixed sets of uh, formulas and discoveries, they haven't monopolized that which has not yet existed. So every time you introduce a new discovery or a new resource, it changes everything. It, it, it upsets this perfect supposed balance that their, that their mathematical models demand exist. So this is where you get a lot of scientists being killed, a lot of scientific research being subverted, the defunding of nuclear fusion, the defunding of, of space, uh, of Apollo, it's canceling and, and beyond. Um, but just to get across, these people don't really care about the environment. They don't really care about pollution. And when you look at one of the co-founders of the Club of Rome, Sir Alexander King, who also brought in uh, cybernetics and art information systems theory into the OECD while he was managing that, um, this was also brought into NATO earlier as a new system of control, um, a science of control, um, which I don't have time to go into. But he basically admits it in 1991. He says, in searching for a new enemy to unite us, describing the origins of the Club of Rome and, and the, the models we just saw above there, uh, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All these dangers are caused by human intervention. And it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. Then he lets the cat out of the bag. The real enemy then is humanity itself. So the real issue was that these, these things, they don't really care about pollution or preserving uh, the environment. From, they don't. It's really that whenever human beings apply scientific and technological progress to improve our conditions and overcome the limits to our growth, in a lawful way by building, let's say, a hydroelectric dam or some other piece of vital infrastructure. It changes ecosystems. Yes, it changes it. But does that mean that it is intrinsically unnatural? Not intrinsically. Of course, human beings can do destruction to nature. I'm not saying they can't. But uh, what they're saying is that it is intrinsically unnatural. The human mind is not natural because the human mind causes these nonlinear changes. So these are, math these are people worshiping at the altar of a mathematical religion. As Galton said, it's really that. Um, one of the last big quote, and then I'll stop. Um, <clears throat> just as it's important. Uh, but John Holdren, who became the science czar under Obama, that's a picture of John Holdren right there in the uh, the, fore, in the the background with Biden and uh, Obama. He was the science czar of the United States for several years. Um, he co-wrote a book with Paul Ehrlich, the, the fellow who popularized the population bomb, utilizing these Club of Rome models in the 60s and 70s. He was his, his student. So in Ecoscience, Population, Resources, and the Environment, John Holdren writes, it's a big behemoth of a book, over a thousand pages, and it's hard read, but there's some disgusting things like this that pop out. But he describes, he muses now, um, 1977. Perhaps these agencies, combined with the United Nations uh, Environmental Protection Agency, created by Maurice Strong, by the way, and the United Nations Population Agencies, created by Maurice Strong, by the way, might eventually be developed into a planetary regime, sort of an international super agency for population resources and environment. Such a comprehensive planetary regime could control the development, administration, conservation, and distribution of all natural resources, renewable or non-renewable, at least insofar as international implications exist. Thus, the regime could have the power to control pollution, not only in the atmosphere and oceans, but also in such freshwater bodies as rivers and lakes that cross international boundaries or that discharge into oceans. The regime might also be a logical central agency for regulating all international trade 
perhaps including assistance from developed countries to lesser developed countries and including all food on the international market. So controlling the food too, why not? The planetary regime might be given responsibility for determining the optimum population for the world and for each region and for arbitrating various countries' shares within their regional limits. Control of population size must remain the responsibility of each government, but the regime would have some power to enforce the agreed upon limits, of course. You can't just you can't just have the COP26 agreements there as a nice thing that people sign on to. You need to have some enforcement procedures, don't you? Is what we're you know told by those who are managing things like the Green New Deal or COP26 or the Paris Accords. Um, so you you definitely have right now a very misanthropic um, grouping, an ideology, which has a religious nature to it, committed to, as Patrick pointed out, uh, a fear, I think, ultimately of their own mortality. There's, uh, I think, a certain inability, human beings that become mature, grapple and deal with the fact that we all die, we're all finite, right? We have certain qualities where within our soul, within our mind, we can tap into and discover universal laws and universal principles of nature that are beyond the world of limitations, justice, you know, freedom, uh, gravity. I mean, things that are equality and that as an idea is not something you can cut in half, right? Uh, I can't cut justice in half and put it in my pocket. It has no beginning or end. Um, so this is something that the human mind, when it's functioning with reason and conscience together as a matured sovereign being, we can tap into these eternal qualities. Um, but our bodies and our brains physically still have weight. They still perish. There's a before and an after. And so you come to terms with that reality of our, of our finiteness, but our also our, our, our infiniteness, that we leave something behind. We, we get something from the past generations from thousands of years ago, and we can leave something behind in various degrees to those who are to come after us. And that's the best way to satisfy our happiness and our purpose for being. And the founding fathers who initiated the who risked their lives for this idea of the united states right of a republic founded upon the consent of the governed and the inalienable rights of all people um this is very anti-darwinian it is against the idea of their personal survival um it was a, it, something that scared the hell out of this oligarchy and always has and still does as it, it represents a, a proof that the oligarchy's very fundamental system itself is wrong, that humans can do that. And we can make these quantum leaps that are not gradualistic. It's not random. It's, uh, it, it is tied to a certain belief and faith in a design, but it's not one that is predeterministic. It allows free will. It allows beauty. Um, this is something, again, that is the, at the center, I believe, of the fight then and still is today. The they are afraid of that. They they all do want to ultimately upload their soul, whatever or whatever they're being into some digital cloud to overcome the, their own fear of death. I think ultimately, and they've built an entire religion religion around that, uh, masquerading as science, and uh, a political structure around that as well, um, masquerading as democracy, but it's obviously not. Um, so we're at now a situation where the you. The, the consequences of World War II were not ended in 1945 at Nuremberg. We, we have still the same type of institutions with a new repackaged ideology. Again, it takes on different forms. It's still just as evil and it's still just as wrong, scientifically, morally so. And I think humanity right now is, is going to face a test on whether or not we can overcome this using those God-given powers of creativity and morality um, and do it in a, in a coherent way 
along with other other countries that don't want to be sacrificed on the altar of Gaia today, which is the current plan. And I think everything going on around Ukraine, around uh, the uh, attempt the attempt to militarily encircle Russia and China, erect a new a new Iron Curtain uh, separating East and West, I think has a lot to do with the fear of civilizational powers that don't want to sacrifice their ancient traditions on this religious altar uh, today. So that's where I would, I guess, just ended. And I know I might have gone a few minutes longer than I, I wanted to, and I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Matthew. That was very instructive, and it builds perfectly on uh, what uh, Patrick ended with. Esteemed colleagues, any questions? Thank you, uh, Matthew. You have given us some very, very good insight. I think for me, what definitely stands out when it comes to your evidence that you have given today is that you have made a connection with the World Economic Forum and you've made a connection as well with the World Health Organization as well. So when it comes to the World Health Organization, that is then where we need to focus specifically on Julian Huxley. You, your evidence is, and you can just say as to whether uh, uh, I've actually captured it correctly, that Julian Huxley, Sir Julian Huxley was one of the co-founders of the World Health Organization. That's what you've said, is, is that correct? He helped set it up and together he, uh, through UNESCO, as well as the World Health Organization, um, co-set up as well the World Federation of Mental Health in 1948 with another Tavistockian uh, psychopath called a psychiatrist called um, John Rawlings Reese, who was again a fanatic uh, world government depopulationist who called for psychiatric shock, shock troops to be installed in different government bureaucracies to uh, redefine global society and rewire its values. And he's very gut-wrenchingly clear. But yes, Julian Huxley did play a very important role organizing the creation of the World Health Organization. Okay, so will you then say that uh, when it comes to the World Health Organization and specifically the role that he played with the setup or the influence regarding the setup of the World Health Organization, will you say then that um, his ideologies, he basically transplanted it into the World Health Organization, specifically when it comes to his uh, eugenic dogmas. I think based upon uh, the writings, the work of G. Brock Kissholm, um, who has extensive uh, comments about what his view of mental health and real health should be, and also political structures to enforce that, I think you can very much make it clear also based on the policies and actions of the World Health Organization, what approaches to um, funding health science were engaged upon over the 1960s, 70s. Um, yes, the, okay. there does still seem to be more work. There are not still, there, there are not as many smoking guns as I would like so far in my research, uh, tying Julian Huxley directly to the uh, helm of each of these policy actions. So you have to sort of take a step back and look at it a bit more dynamically. There are there are some, but not not as many as one would like to take it to court in that sense. So I okay. think you have to approach it a slightly exactly different way. Okay, this is exactly as to where I wanted us to go to. Is that yes, he was he, he was in, uh, instrumental in the setup of the World Health Organization. But now it is a matter based on your research, uh, where one actually needs to go into quite some depth when it comes to its influence and see as to whether that golden thread has been kept 
as a vision or a mission statement? And is it currently still that vision and mission statement? So if it is, then obviously we can then come to the conclusion that the World Health Organization, the fundamental is eugenics, is basically a genocide to the sense. Well, what I would say, and I, I think this is valuable uh, to look at it this way, is that the, infor- the, the science of information systems theory, which was what was uh, applied, sometimes it's called cybernetics, um, was applied to every single domain possible of human knowledge, biology, health science, ecology, everything, and also human economy. The idea was to over-bureaucratize every possible system and compartmentalize it into small, tiny, specialized and subspecialized domains with only a small grouping called the helmsman, a small executive that were permitted to see what the whole was doing so that most people would be uh, not able to see what it was that they were a part of. This was done extremely, this was done intensely in the creation of the big pharmaceutical complexes in the early 70s. Um, the, the policy papers, the scientific justification for this rewiring, what was the World Health Organization playing a very big role um, in this? And things like the Whitehead Institute, the Broad Institute, all of these different organizations that became leaders in a genetic manipulation of, of food, of, of, of everything, um, and, and especially in the terms of the genetic coding, were all coming out of these complexes. Um, so that when you look at people like Eric Lander, who is the Rhodes Scholar czar of uh, science under uh, Biden up until just a few weeks ago, he's been a close friend of John Holdren, and he was the father of the, uh, the Human Genome Project, which always had at its heart the intention to sequence the human genome in order to modify the human species in terms of things like CRISPR, so there are people uh, coming out of the, the big conference in 2015 that announced CRISPR um, who said, uh, people like David Baltimore, who is his friend and president of the Whitehead Institute, that we have now made the unthinkable become thinkable. We now can control the programming of DNA of the species and direct it towards uh, a, an organized direction. So it is, it is very eugenics-based, and I, I don't. there's so many ways you could look at it, but I think that for me... Um, that's the approach I would take, and also the environmental uh, dynamic that Julian Huxley uh, spearheaded to with Maurice Strong. I think that that has a lot of value. If you want to really bring something to a court and prove its invalidity on a variety of levels, that's another fruitful approach to, to take. Okay. My last question to you is that uh, the evidence that you have given when it mm-hmm. comes to the nature of eugenics, uh, starvation is one of the methods. So I am now thinking and I'm reflecting on Bill Gates specifically, where in a sense it is common cause, so because well, it is all uh, over uh, in the alternative media, where uh, Bill Gates is one of uh, the major or the biggest farmland owners, owner, owners in the United States, which means farmland comes down to food production. So will you say, that when it comes to a statement like that, one of the largest or the biggest uh, owners of farmland, and then eugenics is the nature, it is one of the methods is uh, starvation, can you actually draw any positive correlation between the two? I mean, he owns the farm, the farmland, the uh, majority uh, stake of the farmland in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is part of 
part and parcel of this Green New Deal, uh, build back better for the world, uh, insane agenda of trying to have like 30% of the world's surface area off limits to all human development by 2030. That's part of the 3030 agenda, including both the United States, which it's embedded in Biden signed an executive order calling for that. It requires the cooperation of private organizations like Bill Gates's to buy up the farmland and then um, I, you know, bring big chunks of it off limits to actual food production or just simply enforce artificial modes of genetically modified uh, produce that is beneficial um, to the elites, so-called wannabe elites. They, they have the same thing for Africa and beyond. Um, part of it as well is to take farmland out of farm use and put it into uh, windmills and solar panels, which require extensive amounts of land area. That is also what they're doing already across Europe and across North America. They're paying farmers to kill their their cattle and to not plow their or till their soil, so that they could get money in or, by putting up windmills and solar panels, which themselves are very very inefficient forms of energy sources that will cause new constraints onto our ability to support our people mm -hmm. on the earth. And that is part of the design as well. And that's scientifically proven that the energy return on investment of these things is so low that you will not be able to support life in an industrially advanced civilization where you would expect to live 80 years of age on average. You cannot do that. And that's the that's the effect. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew. Mm. Matthew, in concluding, um, if we look at the totality of the evidence, as you described it to us and as, um, as Patrick uh, gave it to us, um, you, we see that the influence of Julian Huxley, even not just on the on UNESCO, but also on uh, the World Health Organization, is still there. We see that someone like Bill Gates, whose family has a eugenics background, has a very strong influence in the World Health Organization today. Um, if you look at everything that we've discussed, would you? say that eugenics plays a big role in today's World Health Organization? Oh, yes, most certainly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I know Whitney did not get a chance to speak today. She had a, uh, an emergency, but I know that uh, in her research, she's gone through that very well uh, on a variety of levels um, that, you know, things like the, uh, the, the engender health is is which was formerly the sterilization league for human betterment is deeply it changed its name but it's a deep uh, embedded part of USAID and the gates foundation as is the galton institute which had just changed its name from the eugenics society which are again embedded into gavi and the the gates you know gates's own father uh robert gates senior uh, bill gates senior was the head of planned parenthood mm -hmm. that margaret sanger was a, who was a, a devout eugenicist and racist had uh, had pushed in a that that's where it came out of was the American eugenic societies. These these there's no evidence that I've seen that their mo has changed based upon the effects of um, creating crises in population war starvation artificially over the past sixty years especially. Even though we've been told oh globalization will feed the world and give everybody a home and all this great stuff and we'll have free trade together and everybody will be happy. No the 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 effect was debt slavery massive war depopulation and uh yeah i think that that is that is truly the case thank you very much matthew i know that um 
Ilana Rachel Daniel is under uh, some time constraints. So um, I would like to once again thank you very much. This was very, very enlightening, um, horrific in part, but we have to see the enemy directly in the eye. We have to look them directly in the eye. And that is very, very helpful what you said here. Thank you again, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Um, Ilana, um, did you hear what uh, Matthew uh, said? And uh, did, you have a, did you have a chance to hear what Patrick said? Yes, I did. I heard them both. So what do you make of this in the current situation in Israel? Well, um, it actually leads up perfect to the things that I want to say. Um, and I'll start from the beginning, as much as you can go, the pre-COVID days here in the past two years, um, what's imperative to understanding um, of how all that's happened in the past two years happened in Israel first, is to first understand the backdrop of Israel prior to COVID-19. Uh, this is a country that not only has been in a state of emergency since its modern inception, um, having experienced war after war and regular attack on every front, but one that's given of itself husbands, sons, and daughters to keep this homeland intact. Uh, not only is this country used to snapping into action when duty and generals call, there's a unique Jewish experience of having been persecuted throughout history and country, culminating in the systematic annihilation of six million Jewish souls and the millions of others deemed undesirable. Um, so you have with Israel the mixture of the historical, ideological, theological, spiritual, and actual lived hope and trust that's placed in our government to finally be in a supposed safe space for the Jewish nation, the flourish without prejudice. Um, at least that was the plan as far as the flesh and blood body of this new old state understood it. Uh, we, the people of Israel, bought the brochure we gave of ourselves and made sacrifices for a collective that's been mined and abused by its government. The Jewish people have historically served uh, the world as the canary in the coal mine. We act as a reflection. When it's bad with and within us, that's a sign of where there's brokenness in the world. We know and have seen repeatedly whatever adversity that starts with the Jewish people never ends with them, but is a fire that spreads to consume all of us. And there's a good reason that all eyes are on Jerusalem. We're not in that coal mine alone. Uh, and we, the people of this earth, do have an opportunity now in the face of the profound losses to see each other without the nudging and blinders and guidelines that uh, powers that be would have us believe about one another. So with the background of some of the harshest lockdowns um, to date, at least at the time, the first which tethered us to 100 meters from the home, only one of three countries to enforce outdoor mask mandates, we were also the first, uh, one of the few to shut down our airports and create an open air ghetto. And security bracelets were on offer to rent to surveil the movement of the, of the return traveler instead of the police. So you have this unique background of trust in government and essentially captured audience of citizens who receives its equally captured news and is the only one to do so in Hebrew. Uh, in the most exquisite of betrayals, then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in December 2020 informed, and I do mean informed, the country on national television that we would all be vaccinated by March. And then he proceeded to do all in his power to make good on that declaration. So what later followed was the revelation that there was an already signed and sealed contract between Pfizer and Israel. Uh, Pfizer, as we know, is an unconscionable, multiple times convicted felon of a pharmaceutical company whose roots branch back to Wyeth, who was once American Home Products, which was a subsidiary of Sterling, 
whereas Sterling and Bayer bought into one another's companies. And of course, Bayer was originally IG Farben of Auschwitz. Pfizer had too uh, chosen these people once again for its thorough and digitized health records on its citizens reaching back decades its small, near hermetically sealed environment, uh, and uh, it's eager to please government medical officials. The contract, of course, was made without any prior notification, public discourse, or put to any sort of vote as in one would expect from alleged democracy. Uh, to this day, only a heavily redacted version of this contract has ever been shown to the public, one where we paid some two and a half times the price per vial than do other countries, and allegedly leaves us beholden to Pfizer's penalty clauses, restrictions, and relative exclusivity. In a further mockery of democracy, the Corona Committee minutes, those which determine the ever-changing policy we continue to be subjected to, have been withheld from the public and classified as top secret in a 30-year confidentiality act. The state was quoted as saying, quote, the public's right to know isn't absolute. The Corona Committee recently made headlines again as it was revealed that on a panel of some 90 experts, less than half were doctors, 16 lack any relevant clinical experience, another 15 were a combination of senior clerks in healthcare, spokesmen, veterinarians, and communication researchers. But what's interesting is the 26 remaining identities, nearly a third, who continue to be concealed because of their positions in security and bio-research. What ensued with the operation to inject as many Israelis en masse as possible with this novel technology for the first time ever was not only a breach of the Nuremberg Codes that were a result of the torture of human testing on this very people, but irrefutably violated the most basic tenets of first do no harm and informed consent. Informed consent is, maybe was, the foundation of modern medicine. It's the answer to the unimpeded atrocities of the Holocaust and the conclusion of the Nuremberg trials and their subsequent codification. Informed consent is defined as, I quote, the process in which a healthcare provider educates a patient about the risks, benefits, and alternatives of a given procedure or intervention and, or, and originates from the patient's right to direct what happens to their body. The patient must be competent to make a voluntary decision and the documentation of the process is an essential element. Informed consent is both an ethical and legal obligation of medical practitioners. Israelis were not given informed consent. They were without inquiry of medical background or an explanation of the gene treatment they were about to receive, injected and sat for 15 minutes at best before sent on their way. No list of potential side effects were given to look out for nor any healthcare provider number was offered to call in case something should go amiss post-shot. Injections were given at breakneck speed, plummeting through the population from the elderly to within weeks to the next and the next down the allotted age range. And in reality, anyone accompanying someone older was often permitted to receive the jab as well so it wouldn't go to waste at the end of the day. Israelis were barraged from the outset with a campaign of fear, coercion, threats, and incitement that only worsened with the change of government to PM Naftali Bennett, who's been quoted with such gems as when echoing U.S. President Biden, proclaiming his tolerance for the unvaccinated has run out. Or on another occasion, how he wanted parents to fight among themselves into compliance. 
He's encouraged neighbor to, uh, he's asked neighbor to encourage neighbor to do their civic duty. And he's breached the sanctity of the parent-child relationship several times going on to national television, directly addressing our youth to go and get jabbed, lest he be forced to restrict their summer fun. And that was just within the first weeks and months of his premiership. The aggressive marketing of the old cult motto, safe and effective, included even outright lies, like in February 2021, when Netanyahu made a video that directly stated the shot was FDA approved, well before that dubious approval was actually given. And this perpetual media campaign assaulted the singular facts we knew to be true throughout the entirety of Corona narrative, which is that here is it with most infections, the elderly and the comor and those with comorbidity are disproportionately at risk, while the young have none. So in crude fashion, we saw on repeat in the days prior to the next targeted age group, the media would carpet bomb channels with overnight and first time ever frenzied stories of hospitalizations and dire health consequences, first to pregnant women, then later for 16 year old youth, then 12 year olds, and then passing another point of no return to our five year old children. Healthy young kids who may have already had and recovered from a COVID infection in the full years time prior, with the whole of their lives ahead of them, were made to believe they had to rush and take a still in its trial technology into their cellular system without a single existing long-term health health safety health term health long-term safety data. No system was initially installed to record post-adverse events. No system was initially installed to record adverse events post-shot, and only recently and rather belatedly has such a database database been set up and to this day its existence is all but unknown to the public at large. It's only been with the heroic efforts of Nakim.org, Israel's People Committee, and Avital Livni's Testimonials Project that any chinks in Israel's happily ever after narrative were even seen. In fact, and now rather infamously, when the Ministry of Health posted on Facebook that the boosters seemed to be altogether safe and effective, they received upwards of 27,000 comments from Israelis describing catastrophic reports of the harm or death incurred post-injection themselves, friends and relatives, some of them posting documentation to prove it. And the Ministry of Health fully panicked, disabled translation into English and began deleting those comments, claiming they were foul language, but many were saved in any case on screenshots, um, which is only one aspect of the cover-up of data. We ourselves submitted a FOIA last March inquiring how many people had died post-shot. And the Ministry of Health's reply was that they did not know. There was not only no chance of recording the deluge of side effects that were all too real. Having received no informed consent, there was no understanding to the average citizen of any adverse reactions having correlated to the jab taken in the previous days, weeks, and months. And further, for those who did understand what had happened to them, the culture of incitement was so great, people genuinely feared for their relationships and livelihood should they openly call the narrative into account. I would say that in order to convince the rest of the world to roll up its collective sleeves of sleeve, no knowledge of harm incurred ever could reach the public, which had left Israel's people entirely gaslit, having been subjected to human testing on one hand and denied recourse or even acknowledgement of that damage done on the other damage that will continue to be revealed for years to come. 
In fact, if you look at the parts of the Pfizer-Israel contract that are visible, you will see the express goals of the research were not whatsoever to discover any safety signals or lack thereof, but as an epidemiological endeavor to test a supposed herd immunity. And of course, the concept of herd immunity here is a complete false flag. It was well known to Pfizer, Moderna, Fauci, the WHO's chief scientist, and the US Surgeon General, just to name a few, this technology never had the capability to stop transmission. And as Netanyahu bought 60 million doses at the very out onset for this only 9 million person population, one might conjecture he was well aware of this too. As we've yelled from the beginning, four doses per person, but even I didn't think it would be within only one year's time. With the month of January 2022 clocking more positive test results than the entirety of 2021 combined, we could probably conclude that this has been a colossal failure and close up shop. Instead, there is an open recommendation for a mind bending fourth dose to the general population 16 years and up. This fourth dose was given to Israelis without FDA authorization or even our own completed studies in Sheba Hospital. Those Sheba Hospital studies, in fact, began only after the fourth dose rollout was initiated. And it was PM Naftali Bennett to go on television and assure us it was perfectly safe to take dose number four of this three times failed product. Bennett made his position absolutely clear when he admonished even the Ministry of Health in charges for taking too long to begin that fourth rollout. And as he stated to Davos only a few weeks ago, his method is to act fast or you might lose out. Borla was just recently, to our great embarrassment, awarded Israel's Genesis Award. And in that video announcement, in proper propagandist fashion, he's actually praised for his savvy at not taking FDA funding so that he could shorten and circumvent the bureaucracy in place for authorization. And in a display that we've entered around so lawless and without reason, Israel's government is again in talks with Pfizer to sign its citizens up for an Omicron vaccine trial. This while we're still beholden to the current trial that we're currently being tested upon. This though even mainstream media has reported that more than half of Israel's population has had and recovered from Omicron. And an absurdity that words do not suffice, not to speak of the exponentially increased risk to inject an already recovered body. And still, school children and employees are forced to pay out of pocket for several times weekly antigen tests that have been openly admitted by health officials to be exceedingly inaccurate. And that's quite a statement compared to the potential 97% false positive PCR tests. These tests, which continue to modify behavior and hold the country hostage to enter schools, workspaces, a lengthy list of cultural activities and our departure or return to the country, depending on the rules of the day. And masks, that ubiquitous requirement, but most sinister of them all are still required for even young children indoors. And it's a dark cloud that's descended since we covered the light of expression in our faces. It should be noted that it's all but impossible to receive an exemption. I've not heard of a single person, regardless of pre-existing condition, be successful at receiving one. One mother turned to me for help for her son who had suffered two blood clots unrelated to the jab and still no doctor dared to write him one. Instead, they offer an AstraZeneca shot, the very one banned in 18 different countries. 
while the world was well aware, and it was openly remarked alongside Burla, the BBC, and Bibi Netanyahu that the people of Israel were in fact the world's laboratory, here on the ground, it remained taboo to say so. But the experiment was not only on our physical bodies, but that of a social experiment on this small interdependent nation with the overnight installation of the Third Reich originated medical apartheid health pass. This green pass, the population, which up to this point, and it's only increased since, was subjected to such overwhelming dissonance of morning to night, night to day, changing regulations and restrictions, one did not know what was law and what was only recommendation. Israelis believed this green pass was legislated and summarily disinvited friends and family home, restricted the entry to hospital, university, cultural event, health clinic. And of course, in the terrific tumbling of for your health, threatened some people to not allow life-saving injuries if they were unjabbed. This, even though our health minister, Nitzan Horowitz, was literally caught on camera saying it had no epidemiological value. And as was true already at dose three, four maniacal shots in were all under-vaccinated. A study was done by the Rupin Academy College that showed 58% of people took this injection for which they knew nothing about, had no medical indication for, didn't personally feel they need, only because of the Green Pass. One in four did so to keep their jobs, and a whopping 78% of newly dubbed anti-vaxxers have been vaccinated by most other and true vaccines. It's a story of separation of newborns from mothers, of the elderly from the family that keep their lives worth living, one that destroyed the trust between doctor and patient, co-workers and friends, and saw new, new recruited soldiers terrorized in the middle of the night and in the mess hall, aggressively coerced to see this jab with a stick of green pass. And though we ate next to, prayed next to, exercised next to these same people for the entire year prior, the introduction of, the, of this gene therapy jab to the staggering majority of this population did nothing to ease the fear of the injection, did nothing to ease the fear of this infection, but rather solidified it as a permanent part of life. And it's the small crimes and quiet atrocities as they pile up from place to place that have systematically dismantled the trust hope and optimism that binds this country together. The green pass is like a wet cloth left in the laundry pile that's created a rot from within, whose damage, like that of the shot, continues to unfold. My first experience of understanding the power of psychological warfare, however aware one attempts to be, has been surrounding the societal horror that is this green pass, as it was renamed, canceled, and reinstated. The Green Pass is set again to be suspended in the coming days, but it's an entirely meaningless gesture as the Nazi originated enabling act has only weeks ago been renewed in our Knesset until the end of 2022. And it gives the ruling government power to remove God-given fundamental and civil liberties with the need only to state fear of the coronavirus. In February of last year, legislation was made to allow the sharing of medical data with local municipalities and authorities. That was later retracted, but in reality, 97% of all requests by public bodies to receive data about private citizens was granted. The Israeli government gave private sensitive information about millions of its citizens to over 250 local and other government agencies. That includes names and addresses of the ill or quarantined, 
test results, contact tracing, and information about vaccination status, all given without the person's knowledge or, of course, their, their consent. Here in Israel, as we watch surveillance system continuously placed in a blanket infrastructure across country, and as we hear of countless citizens targeted with illegal spyware, we find that we have already lost our privacy. And as our ability to withdraw cash or transfer money above small amounts without express permission is already limited, we know we are at present not in control of our possessions. So too with the signing of the Nimbus project. The Nimbus project is a massive seven year project that will replace the data, the data management infrastructure of government ministries and the IDF. One that will see the migration of the entirety of Israel's non-classified data and computerized applications, everything from government military payrolls to welfare payments to government pensions, as well as the medical files, personal and corporate tax returns of private Israeli citizens, instead of on previous dozens of decentralized locations, it will be all in one basket in the cloud of Mordor conglomerates, Amazon and Google. And with the open bragging that the World Economic Forum has infiltrated governments worldwide, we know that outside interests have direct influence over our sovereign, our sovereign nations. We know the databases will grow to continue to grow as they collect our medical information on digital passports. That 100 billion pictures are already ready for facial recognition of every person on the planet. And that our every click and like and real life response to the social media platform algorithm leaves no aspect of the human experience too small to be collected in construction of its digital twin. This is the demolition of our world as we've known it. And while we seem to be marching toward it as if a fait accompli, I think that's one do more to images predetermined by Hollywood than God. And those in power seek to access and control ever more essential sources of life and its regenerative cycles. With a broken promise of never again, we picked up the thread of the past and find ourselves barreling down the path of destruction that will come not only to harm the whole of humanity, but to all things creeping and crawling, green and unfurling, organic, fertile life. Those of us bearing witness to these changes across the globe do so with gratitude for having the eyes to see the changes taking place. That gratitude comes equally with obligation to do all within the resources of our thoughts, actions, and will to see the continuation of creation and the human species 1.0. For the world where we maintain the sanctities of the human experience, such as the relationship between mother, father, and child, the ultimate self-determination of body, the quiet privacy of one's own mind, the sacred communion with nature and another human soul, and a world of dynamic free choice and opportunity to learn and change and do better. It's one that is yet just still within our grasp, if only we decide to do so en masse. For humans with our inherent and ever-present flaws can yet be an exquisite representation of our source in God. Thank you. Thank you, Ilana. Has anyone in Israel connected the dots? Has anyone seen or even noticed that it all started in Germany again with a professor who invented the PCR test on which everything, including 
the vaccines are based. Has any anyone seen that the vaccine, the original vaccine, BioNTech, the, the technology was again invented in Germany? I think that the activists um, who are wide awake are 100% clear of the of the uh, of the parallel uh, where you have the rest. You have a very clear divide, I would say, where the rest of people, it's absolutely taboo um, to even say so. Uh, certainly, I myself never made any comparisons with the Holocaust or any of those things until this time, which is actually the right time to do so, because if you in by doing so you raise up you raise up the, the 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 memory of those martyred to ignore it is literally to cause a second death so i would say that that um with the with the injection of the five-year-olds with the fourth dose they played their hand too far and they 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 lost a lot they lost a lot of um they lost their audience So what is next? Are people beginning to understand that there's something wrong or is the majority of the population in Israel still in line with the government despite all the side effects, which as it as it seems from what you're saying, uh, most people don't seem to make the connection with the, with the vaccinations? Well, I would say that the relentless testing, I think even Bennett said this when he was at Davos, He said, well, of course, we had so many uh, positive test results. 460,000 people are testing daily. So they, they pushed people too far, even two years in. Again, that was my point, was to say how, how difficult it is to accept that our government, spe specifically this government, would want to harm us. But uh, I, there is, like, like Professor Desmond talks about, you have the people on this side, the people on this side, and you have that that collection of people in the middle who, who are, are angry. They're angry. They, they understand that um, a lot's been taken from them. Yeah. Hi, Ilana. Thank you so much for your evidence. Uh, you've given us a good insight as to what is currently happening in Israel. You've mentioned a few very important points, and I want us to focus now specifically on the Pfizer contract. You have mentioned that uh, the larger part or quite an extensive part of the contract uh, between Pfizer and the Israeli government has never been released to the public. Can you once more just uh, tell the, uh, the jury as to what was the specific reason as to why the public was not invited or basically the government not taking the public into uh, the trust and actually say, but this is the contract that we have signed because obviously you've also given evidence where your government also made a very, and I will actually say a very bizarre statement. And that is that public, the public's right to know is not absolute. Can you just explain that to us? Um, well, because my, what I would say is because we were the testing ground, there was no pretense of choice. Eventually other countries got there where you went from, please come and get this jab, please come and get the jab, you better come and get this jab. That came later. Here, like I said, 
the contract was already signed. It was already a signed, ready to happen deal. And Netanyahu just announced it. Um, and then the and and keeping along with that inability to have any informed consent or any say whatsoever. Um, again, the the contract was was uh, heavily redacted, and the Corona Committee minutes um, obscured and 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 by doing so, and um, classified as top secret for thirty years, thirty year confidentiality act. As, it's extremely long itself. I mean, I, I'm specifically thinking that if you're talking about 30 years, then the public will not know, but we're talking about the public now currently being injected with a substance correctly pointed out where they don't even, and they can't give informed consent itself. What I want to find out from you, and you have actually also mentioned FOIA applications. Um, is there any uh, FOIA applications uh, that is still in the pipeline? Uh, from organizations that you are involved with or um, other organizations uh, in relation to really getting to um, what the crux of this uh, mRNA vaccine uh, agenda is in uh, Israel? Um, that would, that's along the legal lines that I uh, personally wouldn't know if there's any plans right now. Uh, I know that there have been a laundry list of attempts uh, to try to get the the Supreme Court to honor only only very belatedly, and actually it was with the what I mentioned last February when they tried to um, allow our personal data to be given to local authorities. Only very belatedly did they even stand up in any way. So I don't know of any current FOIAs being attempted, and, okay. and because the general statement by the by the Supreme Court is that we can't possibly we can't possibly say yes or no when it comes to the world of medicine and science. Therefore, the Ministry of, of Health has, has full ability to do as they wish. So if I also didn't understand you correctly, is that um, the Supreme Court in Israel has made a clear statement, they're not gonna get involved. Are you aware of any specific cases that has basically been uh, instituted in the Supreme Court to say, you know what, the government can't say that we, we don't have an absolute right. The government can't say that we have given informed consent because obviously we don't even know what is contained within these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Um, is there any uh, application that is currently before the Supreme Court that you are aware of? No. Or is it just that the lawyers in, in Israel uh, in a sense, they've said, you know what, I think this is going to be a losing battle. There's no way that we will even get a hearing in the Supreme Court, which is, I believe, in the highest court in the country. Again, that's that's those specifics of what's been tried and what's been shot down. I know that um, the mask mandates and, and, and the, these type of things, these would really be better questions for people who are involved directly, because a lot of that happened um, without any news items whatsoever ever touching on it so but uh, i know that they they made their attempts and, and even in one case that the judge was so annoyed at even having been tried that they made the lawyer uh pay for the entirety of the uh both sides of the um court proceedings yeah okay thank you very much ilana does that mean does that mean ilana that in israel the judiciary doesn't function anymore um you might be able to say it like that 
there was some hope. There have been some rumblings. They were asleep largely for for the, the certainly for, I'd say for the first year. And I, I I I would never even dream of being able to put our hope in it. But um, but they haven't been uh, entirely useless for for when it comes to everything that's been brought to them. Mm-hmm. Well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, again, shocking testimony, I must I must say, um, in particular, when you see the connection between what Patrick and uh, Matthew told us, um, and how this seems to be, at least at this point, invisible to a large part, uh, part of the Israeli population. Um, if it's true that Israel is like the cannery in the coal mine, um, then we should all be extremely careful. And I think it is true because uh, your testimony coincides with what Michael Swinwood, our, our colleague from Canada, says. Now we're all Indians, or what the um, what our friend from um, Australia said, David Cole, now we're all Aborigines. We're all, it seems like we're all in their sights as targets. And we have to be aware of this. We also have to make this clear to the Israeli people before it's too late. Well, thank you very, very much, Ilana. Avita Livni, um, you have something to say to this as well uh, and i'm afraid it's not um it's not very positive either no it's not uh, hello everyone uh, first of all i'm very honored to be here thank you for inviting me um when the vaccinating so-called vaccinating i'm sorry that's the terminology that i'm using because i'm dealing with people that use it and i have to talk to them even mm. though i don't think Uh, of it as vaccines anymore. Uh, but when it started in Israel, soon after, I think um, two months or three months after, I already started uh, hearing about um, people experiencing side effects, people that I know around me. Um, the numbers uh, went up as time went by. And I also started noticing on people on Facebook posting posts telling about what happened to them after getting the shots. And the dozens became hundreds. And yet in the Israeli media, there was nothing. Everything is perfect, no side effects. And also I noticed that uh, whenever somebody posted a post telling about uh, what he experienced, the side effects he experienced, uh, he immediately got um, um, comments like uh, fake news, lies of uh, uh, unvaccinated people, anti-vax people. And uh, I knew right away that the only way to stop this and to uh, bring the truth out is only with video testimonies. Because once you see uh, the person's face uh, speaking from his heart uh, about uh, his tragedy, in your guts you know when it's not fake, you know. Uh, but all the organizations that were involved at the time with the testimonies and with collecting the details and the data And when I contacted them, they told me that it was impossible to get uh, people to uh, testify on camera uh, since they were afraid. So I waited. I was hoping that somebody will, will do it. Uh, but eventually, when I saw that the Israeli government is not stopping, 
the, they're not uh, going to investigate uh, any of the, those uh, uh, reports. And uh, on the contrary, they went full, full, uh, full power ahead and started giving the shots to the 16 and 18 year old uh, um, teenagers. As a mother of two, I decided that I have to try and do it myself. I went inside um, private groups on Facebook of people who got injured from the vaccine. This was the title of the groups uh, and started going over. There were already thousands of testimonies there, posts, comments. I went over thousands of them and contacted uh, hundreds of them uh, through Messenger, uh, introducing myself and uh, telling them about the project that I, I was going to, 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 to do. But almost all of them uh, didn't want to do it. They were too afraid to come out with their stories. And Ilana mentioned it before. Um, uh, you have to, to, to understand that the atmosphere in Israel, since the so-called vaccination started, is so violent, so toxic, a lot of uh, hate, uh, fear. Families are falling apart. Uh, getting divided between vaccinated and unvaccinated. And no wonder, since, as Ilana told you, our own prime minister, uh, the incitement against uh, the unvaccinated is unbelievable. And he was caught on camera saying at the beginning of his uh, uh, being prime minister, he was saying that the unvaccinated people are like people going on the street with a machine gun spraying a Delta virus all over. And as she said, he, he was saying when the, the sh uh, they, they started giving the shots to children in schools, I want the parents of the vaccinated children to fight with the parents of the unvaccinated children. So no wonder people were afraid uh, for their jobs of what their colleagues and friends will say, and they didn't, they didn't want to come out with the stories. So in order to give them a sense of uh, confidence um, and safety, I gave them my word that I will not publish anything before I have at least 40 testimonies. Three and a half months later, uh, the project was ready. It became a um, heartbreaking documentary of an hour and seven minutes. Uh, it was released five months ago, already translated to 15 different languages. Only in our website, it, 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 was, um, it got more than 2 million views. And still, on the Israeli media, nothing. The majority of the Israeli people never heard of the Testimonies Project. You get the feeling that they want to shut it down. They want no one to know of the side effects. As Ilana said, there was this post of the Israeli Minister of Health. They, delete, they deleted thousands of, of, of comments of people saying what happened to them instead of uh, reaching out to them and checking the information. Uh, and not a lot of people know, but in Israel, there is no normal system until not long ago. There was no normal effective system to collect data and uh, reports of side effects, unlike the American verse. Uh, people who, most of the people don't even know that they should or, or are supposed to, to report. Uh, and the people from my project, they tried, when they tried to send in a report, they told me it was in, impossible. At the time, you had the limitation of words and you could only choose from several side effects. So if you had something different, you couldn't, you couldn't put in the report. And the most important thing, no transparency. So you have no idea what happened to your report. 
you cannot see other reports and compare data. The whole idea of the transparency in the American system, the verse, is that researchers, doctors, scientists, they can go inside the data. They can do their statistics and see if there are patterns in some of the side effects that can indicate that this is probably from the vaccination from the shot. In Israel, you don't, we are the laboratory of the world, <laughs> but we don't have a system like that. And, and in, in the American verse, it's mostly doctors who send in their reports. In Israel, a, a woman from my project, her name is Esti. She got heart problems. She asked her doctor, are you going to report this? He told her, it's not my job to report. If you want, go ahead and report it. Most of the doctors are not willing even to write on the same page of the injury where they're supposed to put all the data that th this person two days ago had also, he got the Pfizer shot. They're not willing to write it down. So, and as I said, you have the feeling that they try to shut it down. You know, a few months ago, it's amazing. Uh, one very famous media guy is a kind of celebrity. Um, he's not politically correct. He's saying whatever he wants. He was interviewed by one of his colleagues and he told her, come on, let's speak honestly. You and I both know that as media people, um, we got instructed from the beginning not to say anything against the vaccines. He was saying it out loud. They were not allowed to talk against it. And the doctors, again, and this whole atmosphere, you know, the first thing that the, the people on my project felt the need to tell me when I started taking testimony, the first thing they told me, first, let me tell you that I'm not anti-vax, which is the most absurd thing because they got the shot inside our body. How can anyone suspect them to be anti-vax? But the atmosphere and the incitement is so terrible that they, they get the need to defend themselves. Um, and as I said, in the American verse, you're supposed the transparency is to get the statistics. I don't have the American verse, but only from my project and from the people I spoke to, I, I'm not a doctor, and as a regular person, I could see patterns. I could see clear cut to different side effects. And this is, by the way, how I edited the documentary at the end. I have seven side, of, side effects. I have the heart problems, the neurological problems. These are the most, the two major ones. Vaginal bleedings and miscarriages, skin problems, blood clots, infections, and the burst of disease, usually autoimmune disease. And as soon as it, as it was released, I saw that nobody's going to stop and investigate, and they are going to go on to the ages 12 to 16. So I soon after started another round of testimonies until today, when I try to focus on the younger cases. Unfortunately, now I see cases of teenagers and also on people who got hurt after getting um, the booster. And I was talking about um, uh, the patterns. I can tell you of a few of them. I'm sure people, viewers that listen, uh, listen to us uh, will, will see a few of the things uh, similar to people they know uh, with the heart problems. Um, you have many disorders, uh, uh, pressure in the chest and uh, strong heartbeats, irregular, irregular uh, heartbeats, but the major severe side effects that I see is one, heart attack and cardiac arrest, and um, myocarditis. Yeah, I forgot, suddenly I, I have blackout. Um, 
And also the, 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 the cardiac arrest is mostly with people in their 40s. Every two or three days you hear in Israel about someone who went to sleep and never woke up. But of course, no connection to the shots. Uh, the myocarditis, uh, you have it especially with young men and young boys. And for the young boys, the teenagers, it's days after getting the shots, days after getting the shots. I have two cases of 15-year-old boys who got myocarditis a few days, less than a week after they got the shots. Their par parents are not willing to testify. They are afraid for their jobs. But one thing that I, I, I did uh, uh, manage to shoot a video is about a 14-year-old boy who got heart attack less than a week after he got the shot. And by the way, he was forced by his school to get the shot because he's in a special education school. And they told the parents that if he will not get the shot, he will have to leave school. Speaking of the green passport and all the mandates, um, the majority of the people in Israel, there was the questionnaire, I think you spoke about it, Ilana. Um, the majority um, of the people, they, they did, I think six months ago, they did a questionnaire and around 65% of the people said that they got the shots only because of the green passport. Most of the people in my project said that they got threatened by their bosses, that if they will not get the shot, they will be fired. I have the most... Uh, mind-blowing testimonies about a green passport. Uh, I shot the testimony, eventually he was too afraid to let it out. A 28-year-old man, listen carefully, he chose to took the shot because he was afraid they wouldn't let him in his own wedding. His own wedding, yes. And as a result, two weeks before the wedding, he got myocarditis and he spent the whole wedding sitting on a chair. You see, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, patterns, neurological. Most of the people that got it, they say it started from something around the face, like ear infection, sinuses, terrible headaches. You have also a lot of cases of tinnitus. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Um, and then it spread out down, down the spine with terrible aches. One of the uh, women in the project, her name is Nirit, she said it, it felt like she's going in labor. The pain was so unbearable. And then it going, it's going to the arms and legs when they say it becomes very heavy, almost numb. Uh, going up the, the stairs is impossible. Some of them became almost paralyzed. I have a, a young mother uh, in her 30s. She spent five months in bed because she couldn't move. Her children fed her and gave her drinks because she couldn't lift her arm to hold the, the, the cup. Five months. Um, unbelievable. And uh, all of them, almost all of them uh, complain about numbing sensation in their fingers and toes, uh, electric sensation in their veins. Um, all of them, actually most of the people in the project, even if they get heart problems or skin problems, they complain about severe, severe fatigue. How severe? I have a, a young mother, Olit, her name. She's in her 30s. I asked her, what do you mean by severe fatigue? She said, I can't take my young boy out of the tub. I can't lift him up to the swing. They say that a simple activity like washing the dishes makes them, they have to lie down for two hours after that to recover from it. Vaginal bleedings. This is the most um, clear uh, patterns. Uh, the majority of the women 
got strong bleeding hours after getting the shot, sometimes even just the first shot. Hours, a day two after, strong bleeding, usually two weeks with blood clots, with crunches. Sorry, excuse me for the details. I think it's important. And then they get divided to two different groups. One group that every time they get the period, it's strong, strong bleeding. And some of them even complain that it becomes earlier and earlier. A few weeks ago, um, I shot a new testimony. It's on our website, Leora. She now gets her period every two weeks. Every two weeks, strong, unbearable period. And the other group is the opposite. They get the first strong bleeding. And then, as they describe it, they get dried up once in five months for two, three, three days. Uh, they, they say they feel like they lose their fertility. Some of them even get their blood tests as if they, they are going through menopause, young ladies. And the most amazing thing is that all of these side effects in the beginning of uh, this so-called vaccination, many doctors were trying to warn people and say, listen, there are going to be a, a, a certain side effects from this, from what we see. Uh, we, we think it's going to hurt fertility. Uh, I think uh, you will have a lot of uh, heart problems, uh, myocarditis, and uh, et cetera, and also autoimmune disease, uh, disease. And immediately the Israeli Ministry of Health was saying fake, fake, fake. But now they come to see that everything is, is becoming reality. You know, now I, I don't know if it's only in Israel, but we have a saying saying that the difference between conspiracy and reality is six months. <laughs> this is what they say. And now just two weeks ago, Ilana, I'm sure you, you, you've seen it. Two weeks ago, the Israeli Ministry of Health, uh, uh, it was in the newspaper, they, they did a questionnaire uh, and they found out that after getting the booster, one out of every 10 women complained about problems in her cycle. 10% of the women, and I'm sure the numbers are higher, but let's say 10%, and now you publish it? What all the hundred thousands of young ladies, uh, uh, teenagers, and five-year-old girls are supposed to do with it, this information? Now, they say all the heart problems, no connection to the vaccination, but... Surprisingly, now you start to see defibrillators, the, the thing that gives you, uh, you know, uh, electric shock to the heart to resuscitate in places it, it, they were never there before, like gyms, playgrounds, schools, but no connections to the, to the shots. And even if you don't look at the patterns, only uh, at least the testimonies on, on, on my project themselves are mind-blowing. You have Ali. He's in his 40s. He used to be a boxer, very athletic. After getting his second uh, shot, it was on his birthday. He got a, a very nice present for his birthday. Hours after getting the shot, he, he had a very severe ear infection that got him admitted for five days in the hospital. After he was released, a few days after, he got a stroke. Seven months later, another stroke. And after the project was out, I, I'm still in, in contact with a lot of them. He got a third stroke. He's on wheelchair today. He has a five-year-old daughter. His whole left side is uh, not functioning. Terrible headaches. None of the pain relievers is he helping him. Nightmare. And I was talking about uh, uh, the autoimmune disease. Alona 
a young woman, 34 years old. She got the shot only because she had to go back to the gym. Sports was her life. She was running 10 kilometers every day. To make the long show short, she got autoimmune disease. The body is attacking her muscles, dissolving them. She was eight month, months in the hospital, two weeks uh, ventilized and unconscious. And she was, uh, the doctor says she's 100% handicapped. And she's 34 years old. And you, we were talking about the Holocaust. Not long ago, I shot a testimony of, uh, I think, 87. Uh, she survived the Babia. I don't know if you know, it's her whole family was murdered, her whole family. And now after the booster, it might seem minor, but it's not. I'm sorry for the details, but she has diarrhea all the time. She lost seven pounds and she's a very a small woman. She now weighs 39 kilos. She cannot leave her home. She, she was very active giving lectures about the Holocaust. She, she's amazing. She, she control all the technological things, Facebook, Zoom. She's an active, passionate woman. And now she cannot leave her home because she has to, to be close to her toilet and she's losing weight every day. And she needed to take a CT test. And they told her, yes, we have an available appointment in three months from now. She had to do it on her own, own expense. And there is, by the way, a difference, even uh, though I have those uh, um, patterns, I see one big difference between the testimonies of the, of the documentary and the new testimonies. In the documentary, the testimonies were of one person injured. In the new testimonies, I have a few people injured, like somebody saying about himself and also a few members of the family that were also injured. Yes, uh, the most amazing, uh, one of the most amazing testimonies, Estelle, her husband, her brother, and another woman from the family, all three of them died from stroke. Statistically, how can it be possible? And speaking of statistics, when they wanted to start giving the shots to the five to 11 year old uh, kids, um, the Israeli Ministry of Health, uh, Health started making Zoom sessions to parents in schools in order to tell them how safe and good it is. I got inside one of the Zooms and once the doctor uh, finished her uh, presentation, I asked her, how many cases of myocarditis do you know of under the age of 16? And she told me in United States, uh, according to the verse, where they already had the shots, I think at the time it was 1 million or 2 million children already under the age of 16, we know only of eight cases of myocarditis. So I told her, I'm a little bit confused. Can you help me understand how can it be statistic statistically possible that in all of the United States you have eight cases? And I myself, I'm not a doctor. I know personally three cases of two 15-year-old boys with myocarditis and one 14-year-old boy that had a heart attack. She changed the subject rapidly. And uh, since that moment and on, uh, there were no more questions allowed. But you see, you feel like they don't want anybody to know about it. And you know, we were talking about the green pass, but I'm sorry, I have to make the, 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 the correlation to the Holocaust. For me, in Israel, the most heartbreaking thing as a society 
is to see that Holocaust survivors cannot go in a, a Holocaust memorial ceremony because they don't have a green passport. In the Israeli Center Museum for the Holocaust, Yad Vashem, there is a sign that you can go in only with green passport. I can't understand it. And I'm, I'm coming to, to, the, to the end of my, 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 my testimony, but um, I have to say that now in the new testimonies, there is another new thing that I see more and more cases of tumors and cancer, maybe because it takes more time. Uh, I had, I think two months ago, I shot a testimony, a young woman in her thirties, her name is Hadar. A few weeks after getting the second shot, uh, she started feeling a limp on, on her neck. When she went to test it, she found that she had a, a tumor three and a half centimeter on her thyroid. A few, I think two weeks later, she came, she came to do a checkup again, and it was already four and a half centimeters. And the doctors told her that it's uh, growing in a rate of about four millimeters a week. And when she calculated, calculated, calculated it, backwards, she saw it started exactly after she got the second shot. And in the end, they had to cut half of her thyroid to get rid of the, of the tumor. And on the same testimony, she said that also a few weeks ago, her grandfather died also from a tumor in his lungs. It was huge, around five centimeters uh, tumor. And the doctor said that this kind of tumor, it takes years for this kind of tumor to grow, but they had a CT exam from 11 months before, months before that, and before he, was, he got the shot, and in this CT exam, his lungs were totally clear. So I don't know what kind of other explanations the, the doctors and the Israeli Ministry of Health uh, would like to um, offer us, but it's, it's amazing. And in the end, I have to say that um, besides the testimonies on the side effects, uh, from all the testimonies, I, I, I got a lot of very disturbing other, other, other sides and uh, very disturbing information that raises a lot of, a lot of questions, other questions. Um, for example, uh, many of the people in the project, you can see it in their uh, individual uh, testimonies on our website. They said that, the min that when they got to the hospital with the side effects, the first, things, the, the first thing that the doctors were trying to do is to admit them in the COVID section, even though they had no COVID, especially the older ones. There was one um, uh, uh, man, 85 years old, his name is Gilad. He was left in the hallway for hours. In the, it, it was wintertime, freezing. They told him, listen, we're not giving you any exam until you go inside the COVID section. Why? Why is that? And since we're all here trying always to connect the dots, to tr I'm also trying to do that in, in the last six months to try and understand these horrific uh, situations and things that I see. The only thing that I, connected to, I can connect it to, in my opinion, is, for example, a few months ago in Israel, there was a young teenager, 16-year-old boy. I think his name was Eden. He died from cardiac arrest. He got two shots. 
And on the media, they wrote that, of course, he didn't die from the vaccine. He died from a post-COVID syndrome. <laughs> but his father was saying everywhere that he was never sick. Uh, I think that concludes uh, most of the, of course, I have a lot of, of, of stories and a lot of uh, things to tell you, but we have a limitation of time. I encourage uh, uh, everybody to go into our website and to see it's in English, in other languages. And uh, if you have questions, uh, I will be happy to try and answer it. Thank you very much, Avitai. That's disturbing. Okay. Um, now, if um, if what you're telling us, and it's we know that what you're telling us is it mirrors what all the other countries are experiencing after vaccination. Now, to me, it seems like they created a problem with the help of the PCR test and with the help of the vaccines. And now they're trying to create the solution by calling everything that happens after the vaccinations COVID-related or long-term COVID or whatever. I wonder what the next solution will be. But my question is, we have heard from um, other experts that this problem, the side effects, even though many people are trying to ignore it, the mainstream media and the governments are trying to ignore it, are trying to play it down, it is slowly but surely seeping into the mainstream. How is that happening um, through, sounds ridiculous, but through, for example, the insurance companies? Because all of a sudden, insurance companies, at least in the United States, but also here in Germany, are experiencing something terrible is happening. Their actuaries are telling them, you have to get rid of that risk. And some of them are trying to get rid of that risk. Is that happening? Is at least that happening in Israel? Or do you not know any uh, uh, any of the companies uh, acting like that? I thought about it a long time ago uh, when it started. I, I said that maybe the insurance companies will save us because they will have to give the data uh, away uh, outside because they, they are losing money. Uh, but I, I personally, I don't know. Mm -hmm. of uh, any anything i don't know if uh, ilana knows but i i i, I don't i'm sorry <laughs> mm -hmm. um but i can tell you that um many specialists uh, said i think that gives you the the the, the biggest um since they're not releasing any information uh, not about the, about vaccinated or unvaccinated even if you look of the total picture of the whole picture if you look at the total number of deaths in Israel, you can see um, that it's in correlation with the time of uh, mm -hmm. the vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So if you had like a peak of giving the shots, a peak in, uh, let's say, uh, December, January uh, um, 20, December 2020, January 2021, and now also we had in August the booster, you can see a peak in the total number of uh, that people uh, in Israel. So, but we don't get the information. They don't, any question that you ask. Uh, now, now a few weeks ago, I think they got data about quiet birth and uh, miscarriages in one of the hospitals. I, th I think it was Rambam uh, that uh, they, they indicate a, a high 
raise, really high raise in the number of miscarriages, but they don't give you the information of how many of them uh, it was vaccinated women or or uh, or a- any data. You just have the 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 total number. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get information. Are people in Israel aware of the fact that the trials, the Pfizer trials, because that seems to be the most used vaccine in Israel, BioNTech, Pfizer, are people aware that these trials are a gigantic fraud, as we have learned from a whistleblower and from um, from scientists who took a closer look? Unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't think the majority of the people think it's a fraud, uh, but the majority of the people, uh, I think, look at it as if we tried and it's not working. Okay, it's not working since everyone in Israel now is sick. Everyone, everyone got the Omicron. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, everyone is sick. Uh, 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 it, it was amazing. The streets were uh, very empty. People, I, myself, my family, um, a month ago, we were, me, then my child. Of course, I don't know what it, what it is because I'm not getting tested because it's useless, but uh, it's a kind of a flu anyway. But since everyone is sick in Israel and uh, they, they see it's not working. And, and still, you see the celebrity going on Facebook uh, with a photo of themselves feeling very bad uh, uh, and they say i don't know i did everything i wore two masks i hugged my children only from the legs and still i i got uh, i got covid go uh, put your mask go vaccinate yourself amazing and some people still go on but the good news i think is that the numbers are rapidly going down the vaccination of the children in the terms of uh, the israeli government it's a total failure in their eyes, mm-hmm. because not a lot of parents were rushing their children to get the shots. They don't want to sacrifice I think they, their children, obviously. Yes, but you you know, they saw that uh, they're not willing to do it. So uh, what they have done in the beginning of this uh, um, uh, vaccination of the children, they set a new rule that uh, when a class get exposed to somebody who is positive, the vaccinated children can go back after one day to school with a negative test, but the unvaccinated have to stay, even if they're negative, they have to stay at home for another week or 10 days. Mm-hmm. So parents were pressured to go and vaccinate the children only in order for them not to stay at home. So they can go to work and the children will not be again isolated at home. It was it was amazing. So I think I think people are starting to be aware. I think because of the numbers of uh, the percentage of people going to get the shots now. Um, you alluded to Professor Desmet, who is uh, probably one of the best known experts in the meantime on the theory of mass formation. And he describes um, uh, totalitarianism as a as an inherently self-destructive kind of uh, uh, government, if you want to call it that. Now, and that's that's what seems to be happening. Uh, it the, the system seems to be collapsing. Um, do people are people beginning to see that the promises that were made 
are without any substance whatsoever. I mean, the, that is what, what vaccines are about. They're supposed to give you immunity. And these vaccines or so-called vaccines don't do that. Do people understand that or do they not even know that that is what vaccines are about? Um, I think that I saw this this uh, interview that, that you made about the psychological mm -hmm. part. So. Um, first of all, they, they're trying to uh, give excuses to everything. So at first, no, we have to do the green passport because we are less likely to get uh, the disease uh, and infected. And then they see that they get infected and then they say, okay, no, no. So it, the vaccination is good against um, uh, complications of the disease. It will uh, protect you from getting hospitalized. But they have no idea if it does work or not work. But this is what uh, what they're saying. And I think that what I heard in the interview that you made with him, if I remember correctly, he said that surprisingly, the most intellectual people are going with the narrative. And the more simple people are uh, starting to, to see, to see the truth before them. And it's true. I went to uh, like a marketplace, uh, open marketplace uh, uh, two weeks ago and everyone there, you know, selling vegetables, clothes, they told me everyone is li lying, huh. everybody's liars. Yeah, this is all nonsense. They know it, but they, they, but, but they put their uh, mask here just in case. Um, so it seems to me that the only reason why this system, not just in Israel, but in other countries as well, why the system is still, has still not collapsed is because people buy into the lies. The system is held up by lies. That's the only thing that props it up. But it does yes, seem but, to me that uh, even in Israel, people do begin to understand that they have to ask questions. Is that true or am I mistaken? I think it's true, but I think if we're talking about the psychological, I say because of the size of the victims, I think that they, uh, they are in a stage where they start to realize that something is really wrong. Mm -hmm. But if they say they, they, uh, they um, agree, that there are side effects and there are problems in it, uh, they will be in a very difficult state because um, uh, they have to live. First of all, they feel like they were fooled, which in Israel is a very difficult uh, feeling. Yeah. Israelis uh, consider themselves to be um, really sharp and no one will fool them. And they, first of all, to, to, to feel that you got fooled, it's very, very difficult for Israelis. And the second thing is that once you understand what's happening with those shots, you get into a true fear of death. You feel like you're, you have a time bomb in your body. You don't want to admit it. They say, okay, I already did it. I don't want to know about it. That's why I think in my perspective, it's, it's so important that we will find a, a, a kind of a cure or something to, to, to help. Because if you have the cure and you have the hope, people, it will be easier for them to admit that it was a mistake. This is what I feel. Yeah. So as long as they, there's no hope, they put their head in the sand and they say, I don't want to know about it. So we need a real cure for the fake cure. <laughs> a real cure for the damages of mm -hmm. the fake thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Wow.
I'd like to throw something in um, uh, at this point, um, Reiner, if you, if you don't mind. Go ahead. Patrick. I think Avatar's work is absolutely the most important work that we have here now because, as you know, and the lawyers know that are listening to this, um, we must be able to show an uh, actual damage before you can even make a complaint. There has to be damage, it has to be documented. And it has to be emotional if you're going to present it to a jury. Um, her website has that, that can't be, uh, can't be assailed. It's not her testimony, mm -hmm. it's their testimony. Those are the people that have been injured. The other thing that's interesting, and I think that's just so critical, I thank you for your tenacity, uh, Avatar. I, I, I appreciate your tenacity, and I know that's, a, that's often a characteristic of people from your country, and it's a good thing that you have that. So I'm glad, <laughs> just keep it up. Do not give up under any circumstance. Um, and I expect that you won't. But the other thing is that the propaganda that's been pushed down from above your country level that trickles down to you, because we're getting the same propaganda you get. Um, if this propaganda were uh, all of a sudden stopped, the whole thing would fall apart in a matter of weeks. The propaganda is just like in a war, has to keep coming to pump up that deception in people's mind. If the propaganda chain is ever broken, the whole thing will fall apart in, in just a matter of weeks and people will wake up one day and say, what on earth just happened? Mm -hmm. We've seen this in other countries and other situations, but I offer that as, as a key thing. The other thing is we can't blame a doctor in, individually for what's happening, but the people who are controlling the top of the pyramid have created a culture of abuse that has trickled down into every hospital, into every doctor's office, into every health clinic, every emergency clinic in the world. Now, there's a few exceptions. We know that. A few doctors are still practicing that don't buy it. But by and large, the whole thing has trickled down. It's a culture of abuse that's been created. This, I, don't, I haven't seen this really brought up anywhere in, in our country yet. Okay. Who created the culture of abuse in particular that it would end up with testimonies like what you are showing on your website. That's what I want to know, ultimately. Who created the culture of abuse? Knowingly created. I, this can't be an accident. There's no accident here. I, I don't believe it at all. But somebody at the top, we, we've been talking about a lot of them, I'm sure, we need to make that connection. Here's where the pattern, here's where the culture of abuse was intentionally started and passed out to all the countries in the world Every country has somebody like we have an Anthony Fauci, uh, the, the director of all things medical, uh, to, to dictate policies and stuff. Where did this stuff come from? Did it come from the World Health Organization? If so, who? Did, no, that's not a, that's not a pun. Uh, individually, who is the individual? Um, so you're, you're bringing out, you're really surfacing critical questions here, I think, and you're your explanation of you know how people are being deceived is only evidence that propaganda has done its work. That's the nature of propaganda. It's done its work. It's it, intended it, to deceive people. Yes, Israeli Ministry of Health, I think it was published somewhere, they spend 250 million shekels. How much is it in, in dollars, Ilana? 
I think uh, around, um, I don't know, 100, one, let's say one, 100 million, doesn't matter. That's a lot of Israeli money uh, in, in advertising this, uh, this, this thing. And it's our money, by the way, it's Texas money, okay? And if you also connect it to what I said uh, earlier, that uh, uh, this media guy, he said out loud that they were instructed not to say anything ed- about vaccination. And it was, it's daily, it's all the time. Every show, doesn't matter what they speak about, singing, eating, go vaccinate yourself, go vaccinate yourself all the time. But I have to tell you that surprisingly, in the last few weeks, you see signs of truth coming out of course, I'm very suspicious. I'm trying to understand what's, uh, uh, what's behind all that, why suddenly doctors are speaking out. But you had um, the manager of the COVID section in the biggest hospital in Israel. He was on the news. He was saying 75 to 80%, the majority of the critical and severe cases of the COVID in my, in my section, in my, in, in my hospital, are vaccinated with booster or more. He said that the most critical uh, 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 cases, 75 to 80%, he was saying out loud, this vaccination does not stop the, the complications of the, of, the, of the disease. And vaccinated or unvaccinated, it's all the same. This is what he was saying out loud. Also, also there was a, a document of the Israeli Ministry of Health that was published long time ago that it was written there that the mask has no um, medical uh, logic. Hmm. It was meant to educate the people. And, and, but I think most of the people are so busy in the everyday survival, children, uh, bringing the money, especially after one year, you know, I think we, we hold the, 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 the medal for the most uh, days in uh, lockdowns. I think we had four and a half months in total in the first year of lockdowns. Very, very strong lockdowns. Uh, thousands of businesses went uh, bankrupt. People lost uh, the, the way to, to put food on the table. So they have no time to think about anything. It's just, they just did it because everybody did it. And they don't have the time to look for the information that will tell them that it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, thank you, Avita. Um, thank you. This is like taking a magnifying glass, looking at Israel and realizing that this is what's happening to the entire world. Let's turn that magnifying glass or the binoculars around to get a bird's eye view of history and talk to Vera Sharaf. Um, Vera, I, I know you've been ta- you've been listening and uh, we've spoken about this. Um, it's very hard to say anything to this, but um, you have a different perspective because you know where it all comes from, not just from reading history books, but from having experienced it in real life. Yes, but I'll tell you, it's extremely upsetting to to hear the details of of the Kabbalah in Israel. I mean, it, it really is because essentially Israel has lost its raison d'etre. The government the government is doing 
what Mengele didn't finish. I mean, this is what's going on. It's unbelievable. And people all over the world are, you know, are gasping. Why Israel? Why Israel? Well, my explanation is that, damn it, you know, Israelis, Jews, not, no different from others. And so when you have corrupt government, you're going to have all the corrupt elements showing up. It doesn't matter that it's Israel. The other thing is that, yes, I, I keep talking about history well, because of course I, I was in that history, but this is really, uh, it shouldn't be that only a, a witness uh, takes history seriously. History is really how you can discern um, patterns, similarities. And one of the things that uh, people come really in, I'm being besieged, I can tell you, by for interviews and things. I mean, really, it's, it's too much. But part of it is because nobody else who touches it to make the comparison is left standing. I mean, there's a businessman who has three breweries in Brooklyn and he put on, on whatever, Twitter or something, made a comparison and my God, they're ready to, to lynch him. He may lose his business. Well, he's, he's gonna be okay, I met with him. And, but the point is, his whole family were either victims or survivors. Doesn't matter. So this tells me, of course, that that, that is kind of a real, real, um, how should I say, that's the hot spot. They are terrified of yes. people starting to see the parallels between the prelude and what's happening now. It's otherwise there wouldn't be this intensity from all kinds of both individuals and institutions. But that's not what I'm going to talk to you about today. Today, I'm going to talk about something else. But first I want to just bring out that, you know, Albert Camus, the French philosopher, he said, the only means to fight the plague is honesty. Well, guess what? As we know, honesty is nowhere to be found within the corporate dominated government and public health agencies. So for two years, we've all been subjected to the psychological weapons that the Nazis used to maintain a state of anxiety. I'm not so sure about, you know, the, um, um, the uh, marching exactly and who it is, because one of the things that Avital mentioned, which is very true, is that the people who are most um, unthinking, really, or shielding themselves, you know, as ignorant, are the educated. This is this is very apparent, I think, all over, which ought to give us a signal that the system of education is an, a huge failure in terms of what we thought education should be. Because the more <laughs> years you spent uh, at a, 
and educational institutions, particularly universities, somehow the less you are willing to trust your own thinking, your own critical thinking, and instead of looking for authority to tell you what you should do next. That's, that's a very big condemnation of you know, the educational process. Uh, what I am looking for now, what I want to talk about is, look, I mean, we're, we've been deluged with fear-mongering propaganda now for the two years. And the horrific scenes of police in black uniforms, brutally attacking demonstrators in European cities, in Ottawa, in Australia, and in Israel, these scenes are absolute painful reminders of the Holocaust. Uh, the objective under the Nazis and now is actually exactly the same. It is to gain control over people's lives by conditioning them to obey government directives, no matter what. Now, I want to address uh, the pivotal role that eugenics as a hierarchical authoritarian ideology is, and it leads to genocide. That's, that's its end game. Eugenics was crafted and appeals to the elite segments of society. Uh, but it also appeals to the corporate oligarchs and selected government officials. And that's more important. The British eugenicists provided the theoretical foundation, which has then been used to justify social and economic inequality, to legitimize discrimination and apartheid, as well as violence against dissenters. But it was the American robber barons who provided the financial, the practical means that set in motion public policies and population control legislation. Uh, if someone can show picture one, uh, which is the cover of Edwin Black's book, War Against the Weak. And he puts it this way, he says, eugenics was conceived at the outset of the uh, 20th century and implemented by America's wealthiest, most powerful and most learned men against the nation's most vulnerable and helpless. And that's exactly right. The American titans of industry used their influence to enact laws and discriminatory public policies that swept aside moral principles and stripped segments of the population of their civil rights and their human rights. In 1915, a joint eugenics venture was brokered by John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone, and Mrs. E.H. Harriman, mother of the future statesman, Avril Harriman. They had already consolidated their monopolies in oil, railway, steel, and the banking industries. 
So at this point, they sought to preserve their vast wealth and advance their interests by investing in methods to control and reduce populations. The goal of eugenics was and is to eliminate people whom the elite deemed inferior genetic material. They funded a massive lobbying campaign for the enactment of laws to sterilize those whom they deemed unfit. Sterilization laws were first enacted in 28 states in the United States. Their objective was to sterilize 10% of the American population, that was 15 million Americans. This was to be accomplished under the guise of improving public health and the human race. Uh, number two, US sterilization laws served, as you know, the model for the Nazi racial hygiene laws. For over a century, the Rockefellers have continued to be the largest financial backers and drivers of eugenics and the depopulation agenda. Number three. The night. It's all right. If it doesn't work, we'll, you know, <laughs> I'm used to technology. And um, we have six pictures, uh, Vera. I know, whatever. Okay. Let's start with the first one, then the second one, then the third one. Okay. The third one should be the 1918 Spanish influenza. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now. There it is. Okay. So this is what mostly I want to talk about the 1918 Spanish influenza. It's estimated that it killed between 50 and 100 million people worldwide. This catastrophic pandemic has been encased in a false narrative for over a century. An examination of the facts reveals a plethora of similarities between that false narrative of the pandemic in 1918 and the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. The 1918 pandemic was not, it did not emanate from Spain. It was not a flu, nor was it caused by a virus. By misidentifying it as influenza from Spain helped to conceal the true nature and origin. In 1918, as the United States entered World War I, the military was expanded to 6 million men, uh, of whom 2 million were sent to the battlefields of Europe. Scientists at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now the Rockefeller University, seized the opportunity to test an experimental vaccine on this now new available pool of human guinea pigs. Few people realize that disease killed far more soldiers on all sides than machine guns and mustard gas or anything else associated with World War I. In January, 1918, an experimental meningitis vaccine made from the pus of horses was tested on soldiers. Dr. Frederick Gates, board president of the Rockefeller Institute, 
and trustee of Rockefeller Foundation, began the experiment at Fort Riley, Kansas in January, 1918. In his 1918 published report, he notes that the vaccine was given in three random spitball doses, not exactly accurate. 4,792 men received the first dose. 4,257 got the second dose. And only 3,702 received all three doses. That's a reduction of close to 23%. Dr. Gates doesn't report what happened to 1,090 men who did not show up for the third dose. Gates wrote that shortly after being injected, soldiers exhibited flu-like symptoms, including cough, vomiting, and diarrhea. The reactions, he said, simulated the onset of epidemic meningitis. But Dr. Gates brushed it aside and declared it was not actual meningitis. One wonders what science Dr. Gates relied on. Influenza outbreaks were reported at 14 of the biggest armed force training camps. Recovered troops carried and transmitted the infection to healthy soldiers in the battlefields of Europe. A 2008 report surveyed worldwide fatality and mortality rates during the pandemic. They described how bacteria rapidly spread from infected people to others, particularly in crowded settings, such as hospital wards, military camp barracks, troop ships, and mines. Um, Now, further evidence was obtained from something like 9,000 autopsies worldwide. The autopsies proved that the 1918 flu was not a flu. According to the autopsy lung cultures, bacterial pneumonia killed at least 92.7%. When World War I ended on November 11, 1918, soldiers returned to their home spreading the killer bacterial pneumonia worldwide. One of the most important eyewitnesses was Dr. Eleanor McBean. She witnessed the human carnage at the age of 13. She and her African-American family did not get vaccinated. They remained healthy throughout the pandemic. She became a doctor and authored several books, including The Poisoned Needle, 1957, Vaccination, The Silent Killer, 1977, and Swine Flu Expose, 1977. She provided very vivid descriptions. I'll read a little bit. When the flu was at its peak, all the stores were closed, as well as the schools, businesses, even the hospital, as the doctors and nurses had been vaccinated and were down with the flu. Number five, 
No one was on the streets. It was like a ghost town. We seemed to be the only family which didn't get the flu. So my parents went from house to house doing what they could to look after the sick as it was impossible to get a doctor. If it were possible for germs, bacteria, virus, or bacilli to cause disease, they had plenty of opportunity to attack my parents when they were spending so many hours a day in the sick rooms. But they didn't get the flu and they didn't bring home germs to attack us children. None of our family had the flu, not even a sniffle. And it was in the winter with deep snow on the ground. Dr. McBean identified the experimental bacterial meningitis vaccine as the primary culprit. She wrote that only those who were vaccinated perished. Sound familiar? Yes. Uh, can such a vaccine generated catastrophe happen again? No. I think it needs to be really, really, this example is, I believe, extremely important. Yeah given the players. Okay, uh, number seven. In 2018, PBS, that's public broadcasting, aired a documentary, The First Wave. The documentary fills in some of the gaps that Dr. Gates failed to disclose. We learned that by March 11th, the Fort Riley camp surgeon was confronted with the first wave of the pandemic. 100 men a day were entering the infirmary with the same malady. Some 2 million US soldiers were injected with the Rockefeller experimental vaccine. It sickened them and weakened their immune system before they were shipped to Europe. Number eight is a hospital. You've seen these, I'm sure. Now, when the war ended, the Rockefeller Institute sent the deadly meningitis concoction for use in civilians in England, France, Belgium, Italy, and other Western European countries, thereby spreading the epidemic worldwide. I assume that he didn't send it to Germany because that's who they were all fighting. So maybe Germany was spared the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. But what I want to ask, and I think that needs to be asked, is was the decision to ship the deadly vaccine abroad once they already knew what it was doing? Was it just for profit über alles, or was it part of a eugenics genocide playbook? Mm -hmm. Now, Anthony Fauci, continues to cite the 1918 pandemic to generate public fear and panic of viruses. He resorts to frightening people into getting vaccinated. So in 2007, Fauci was on a fear-mongering campaign about the H5N1 avian influenza viruses. And he warned, I quote, heightened international alarm that an influenza 
pandemic may be imminent. Concern has been raised that the new pandemic, as fatal as the pandemic of 1918 or more so, could be developing. The same year, he authored an article claiming that the genetic sequencing of the entire genome of the 1918 virus has been accomplished. Dr. Fauci lied. There was no virus genome to be sequenced. In 2020, in December 2020, Fauci again raised the specter of the 1918 Spanish flu. And I read, coronavirus is a pandemic of historic proportions that has the potential to be as serious as the 1918 Spanish flu, in which 50 million people probably died. I think we can't deny that fact. So my question is, if a vaccine has likely killed 50 to 100 million people, the loss of those lives far outweighs any vaccination benefit. Now the goal of today's globalists and their planned great reset remains the same as it was in the 1930s. Their objective is world domination and total control of the world's natural resources, financial resources, and human resources. The global oligarchs seek to overthrow democracies and to replace them with the corporatist global model. This time, their most effective weapon is today's high-tech surveillance capabilities. The author and historian Anton Chaikin points out that, and I quote, I.G. Farben, was not only responsible for Hitler's rise to power in concert with the Rockefeller family, they became part of the elite's plan to take over the world. The current corporate takeover is the culmination of that plan and is a continuation of the eugenics program begun in the 1920s. The goal remains the same, world domination by the elites and the culling of the herd. After World War II, the global pharmaceutical colossus was a reincarnation of the IG Farben cartel pattern, which is profit before safety and the use of drugs and vaccines as a means of control. The Rockefellers continue to be the most instrumental global in, in the globalist plan for world domination. It's a century that they have been at the forefront. They have controlled medicine since the early 20th century. They essentially created the modern pharmaceutical empire to dispose of petrochemical waste products left over from their refining process. In the 1920s and 1930s, they financed eugenics research at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Germany and the foundation remains one of the most influential institutions financing radical genocidal eugenics globally, including vaccines that are meant to end fertility. The 
strat their strategy is to impose global medical tyranny managed by big pharma and big tech. Now, a COVID-19 pandemic was first outlined by the Rockefeller Foundation publication in 2010. The chapter lockstep laid out the scenario of the global pandemic quite perfectly, concluding that the only, the only way to mitigate the global pandemic was to follow the Chinese authoritarian police state. Lockdowns was the recommended method. Now, the Rockefeller lockdown recommendation unimaginably was actually implemented by governments across all of Western Europe, United States, Canada, and Australia. That was, I think, a big shock to all of us that people actually did it and complied. In April 2020, the foundation issued a blueprint for the creation of a nationwide DNA database for the entire United States population. Bill Gates, a lifelong eugenicist and a major shareholder in the business of vaccines, declared that the COVID vaccine will be the final solution. Now, you can imagine as a survivor, I, I take that very seriously. Uh, one of the things that we can learn from all of this is that really they have, they have put out in documents that anyone can read what their plans are. And most will say, oh, that's conspiracy theory. No, it's not. They're laying out and, and they're going according to plan. We are really, we're living at a very critical juncture in human history. We are on the brink of a totalitarian dictatorship and this time it's global. This time there will be no rescuers. It's for us, if we don't reverse the trajectory of obediently following government dictates, we will either be annihilated or revert to the status of slaves. You can ask me anything you want, but uh, I thought I'd throw the 1918 because I don't know that you've uh, heard of it before as, as far as the close. There are so many similarities, really, I didn't have time to you know, I'm sure you've heard from scientists and doctors the various hazards of the vaccines that I didn't have to do that. Uh, but this is now much more in plain sight, as I say, and I think somehow or other we have to get it across. I think that one of the things that was said previously is, you know, absolutely true. We see it with the truckers in Canada. We see it with people. People, working class people have not been bamboozled. Mm -hmm. They recognize, you know, that, they, that they're trying to bamboozle them. And so they're not buying it. And even if they have to wear masks to maintain their jobs, they wink and whatever and say, this is all nonsense. The problem really is the 
educated class, the ones that are uh, the ones that are bombarded by the the uh, upper echelon media, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and all that. That is the worst because they really, really trust those publications. Um, I think I think that we are making headroad. I think that people, you know, there will be a big demonstration tomorrow in Vienna. Uh, I don't know what it will take. I just hope that there won't be again the, the sites that we saw, for example, in Ottawa, where a woman was trampled by a policeman's horse. But it's violence is really just beneath the surface. And I, I'm not sure I would really want to hear what is the best way to avert the violence from exploding. I think that's what you're doing, Vera, um, exposing this. Uh, and what we are all trying to do, I think we have to, we have to follow suit. We all of us have to expose these things and have to make it clear that it's all out there in the open. Anyone can read it. Yeah. Anyone yeah. can read it. Um, and it's a, it's a matter of time, I suppose, um, until this whole house of card implodes. Unfortunately, however, many people will fall victim to this one way or another. And that's nothing, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, I think that is the only, that is the only way out, exposing them, trying to get as many as possible from that 40% group who are sitting on the fence to come over to our side, not to save ourselves. We can save ourselves, but to save some of them. The, the problem that you know, that many of us, I think, have bumped into with friends, with family. I, you know, I know a family in Israel is to pull them over to read the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, don't listen to me. No, they, they, the answer that I got from my sister-in-law was, I trust the Department of Health. <laughs> End of story. Mm -hmm. you see, I see. Now, I call this willful ignorance. Uh, and from what Avital was saying, I mean, they're kind of really shielding themselves from the inevitable, you know, as uh, Israel was the first to jump on the bandwagon and they're now the first, you know, doing the worst. Um, but what will it take to get, because really, it, I don't know what it is that, that caused this kind of like a freezing, people freeze and no, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to, what do you mean you don't want to look? Why not look and talk and argue? That's okay. No, that tells you that there is beneath that shield of, you know, uh, oh, I'm, I'm trusting, uh, you know, authority. There is this unease, I think, yes. because why wouldn't you want to get information, whatever it mm. is? Because it, it'll, it'll destroy your whole, um, 
I, I think that's what people are afraid of. It'll destroy your whole view of the world, as you have learned it over the last 70 or 80 years. This is what Michael Swinwood, one, one of the attorneys who we um, cooperate with from Canada, says. He says, I've been lied to for 73 years. That's how old he is. Uh, and I've spoken to one of the experts today. Uh, she's a biologist, and her um, she understands everything, of course. Um, and sh she has a sister who uh, who is a lawyer. And she says, my sister understands everything as well. But that one step that she will not take conspiracy, because that yeah. is just too much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. They don't want to. But, you know, look, in the 30s, they, people didn't believe Hitler either. Yeah. It's just it's the same thing. They didn't believe it. They just thought he was a ranting lunatic, you know, the people outside of Germany. But that's just it. I mean, a lot of it is actually foretold. Yeah. But people don't believe it. Um, okay. The, the, the problem that they have, you know, the, the, these psychopaths, is that they cannot control individuals such as us. Mm -hmm. And that's th this, I'm sure th this is something they need to crack that nut because they can control, we see how they can control groups, they can control whole uh, countries, and they certainly can control uh, heads of state, you know, with nice thick checks. <laughs> but they don't, they can't predict who the individuals, you know, will be who will not go along. And then they don't know how to intimidate us to to do it to go along anyway. But this is this is part of, I feel you know the whole eugenics model is based on really a, a hierarchical you know division and and it's of course totally arbitrary. The ones deciding are the elites who who don't want you know don't like some either an ethnic group or a racial group or or whatever a working class. And they decide to put them at the bottom of the heap. But individuals really, uh, when biology is free to do its natural selection and all that, then you can't predict. They have been trying, and you know, German psychiatry and American psychiatry have been trying for all these decades, since the 20s, to find a genetic cause for all kinds of social ailments, which they categorize as various psychological uh, disorders. And they've never found them. That's all they're tinkering with is genetic, genetic, genetic. And it, it ain't there. But that's because they want, they want to, in other words, find that which they want to find. They, they don't really do real science. By the way, it, it was Rockefeller who funded um, genetic psychiatry at the <laughs> Institute. Yeah. They want that as, I guess, as, as a uh, validation that uh, eugenics is, is a science. Well, it's not. Of course not. I would like to uh, make a, a, sh a shout out for Vera having mentioned Edwin Black. And uh, I'd like to just elaborate for 30 seconds on that. 
his research and the books he has written uh, over a period of years uh, is possibly uh, one of the most important collections of information that we've ever had on the role of technology in the Holocaust and everything that built up to what happened in Germany. And uh, interestingly, um, the original Hollerith computer was assembled, designed and assembled in the basement at Columbia University in New York City. Uh -huh. uh, the basement at Hamilton Hall was given to temporary projects. Uh, they happened to like IBM and they gave them half the basement in Hamilton Hall. And that's where they got the, all the brainiacs together and, and came up with the Hollerith computer that made its way straight into Nazi Germany ultimately. Yeah. And took care of all of the statistics, statistical analysis, all of the train scheduling, and just you name it. IBM was there. His work was damning, still is. The books are all available anywhere you find books. But um, the other half of Hamilton Hall, just interestingly enough, was occupied by the technocracy group that happened to be at, at Columbia University in 1932. <laughs> and uh, they rubbed shoulders with these people. Yeah. And I'm sure one scientist speaks to another scientist and says, like Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. <laughs> and I have a vision oh, yeah. for the future. Yeah. And here we are today talking about it, what, 90, 100 years later. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. Thank you, Vera, for your testimony. I just, Edwin Black's, any of Edwin Black's books are worth reading for historical perspective. That's right. Yep. He lays out the IBM in detail. She does. Thank you so much for your evidence, uh, Mr. Shalal. Um, I've got a following question uh, for you. Uh, thank you that you've actually set time aside so that you can give evidence uh, in this uh, grand jury. Very much appreciated. Um, you have mentioned in your evidence that the Nazis uh, has used exactly the same state of anxiety. And is it possible that you can actually draw some specific similarities between what you have seen and experienced during the Holocaust and what is currently happening with this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it, you know, I was a little girl uh, at the time. I was three and a half. Um, what, I, what I experienced was the fear that, that was just palpable everybody all the time under a state of fear and in the camp the fear was to be put on a list because the list was either that people were sent for slave labor or they were sent to the death camp so this hung over you know all the time uh i was too young to have heard you know the 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 um, propaganda the radio and because at that time it was essentially radio uh, but i can tell you that the certainly the 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 jewish population wherever they were were you know in in total terror but i think that they also had the german people in fear as well, because if you 
if you didn't follow exactly what you were supposed to, someone would report you and people disappeared. Um, there were, you know, concentration camps in, in Germany and some Germans wound up there if they said something that somebody told that they said, you know, that sort of thing. Same thing went on in the Soviet Union. So, you know, when you are in, under a totalitarian regime, you are always in a state of fear because they may change the rules all of a sudden. Just it, it, we had that in the lockdowns where the um, curfews were different. You know, one week it was nine o'clock, another week it was 10 o'clock, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. All of that is very calibrated and calculated Absolutely. to create anxiety and fear. Yeah. It, it's to destabilize your, uh, you know, ability to feel secure. So from what you've just mentioned now, it is clear for the jury that we are actually talking about fear. They're using exactly the same kind of methods uh, during the Holocaust. And you've mentioned in your evidence that we're talking about uh, the propaganda uh, that the people actually heard uh, from the news, uh, uh, radio more specifically. And then you've mentioned also something very interesting where you've mentioned a list. So the people were fearful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can see exactly the same kind of similarity when it comes and the evidence that we've heard today that if you do not have a green pass in israel and that basically goes almost like for each and every other country that is following in lockstep to yeah. me that seems to be exactly the same will you agree with that uh mr Shara? yes i do i think that uh you know there's always the matter of degree and and that sort of thing but i think that what has been done now in the 21st century takes into account they have perfected the psychological weapons all these years so they don't have to really be brutal they don't have to be physical really and we see it because imagine they really have been able to impose their will on the entire Western globe, at least the Western. Uh, this is because they've perfected the methods, the, the, the uh, psychology, look, it, it, they, psychologists are the ones that conducted the torture at Guantanamo Bay and in Iraq. Okay, psychologists, that's really, part of their business and someone asked before who are the ones who you know who can we really blame who caused this psychologists have a psychologists and psychiatrists have a huge contribution if you will to this kind of evil because it is manipulating emotions and thoughts and and for and for ill it's always it's, it's like a for a poison they are trying to undermine our self assurance our self image and our trust in our own judgment 
Okay. So um, having regard that you are a Holocaust survivor, what is the main thing that basically stands out for you when you look at the COVID-19 landscape? And also from the stories that you've actually heard from the people who survived, because obviously you can give us a first-hand narrative. I Look, I, I do remember quite a bit, quite a few things. And the, um, the, the, first of all, immediately when we were chased out of our home, right? Uh, made to wear a yellow star is a sign of shame and then deported and herded into a concentration camp and starved and all that. When I see now they've in different countries, they've prepared, um, camps which uh, they call quarantine camps but they're concentration camps the the, the uh, nazis um demonized jews as spreaders of disease it was also so spreaders of disease then and now spreader you know infection now this is they're using really even verbatim it's amazing mm-hmm. and as i mentioned before and, and in other venues one of the things that i am trying to fight against is the attempt by i call them vigilantes who pounce on people if they even mention the possibility that there are some parallels and that we ought to you know be aware of them and not go in that direction now what they are doing is making the Holocaust irrelevant to history now. And that I believe is a far worse sin than Holocaust denial because they know what they're doing. They're protecting, it's as if they're protecting their fiefdom. They're putting it away in a safe deposit box, not allowed to touch the Holocaust when you're studying history. Why? I realized that the, the why is because if more people actually looked at it, they would recognize the similarities of the stages, the years before the gas chambers. Now, the fact that the gas chambers happened as, you know, a, a Auschwitz survivor, Primo Levi, an Italian, had said it happened, therefore it can happen again. It can happen everywhere. That's a lesson. That's an important lesson. We are still, you know, human beings didn't really change. And human beings of all groups are capable of being, you know, leaders and, and saints and devils. We, we really have to understand human nature has the capacity to, for both, for good and for evil. And we have to make choices. And when we when we are confronted by evil, we need to recognize it, you know, and do something about it rather than close our eyes and, and not see. That's the worst thing. Mr. Sharaf, my last question to you, um, and seeing that you've actually drawn the parallels now, uh, I would like to find out from you, 
uh, when this pandemic started to roll out, which we actually say it's the, uh, a pandemic, when was the first time you've actually started to see the similarities and say, no, 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 to me, it seems eerily, uh, eerily similar to what I experienced as a child and what the Jewish people has experienced. And it seems like this is exactly the same trajectory that, uh, or the pathway that this COVID-19 is steering, not just now in Germany, but on a global scale. When did you start to actually see the similarities? Uh, I think, well, first of all, I didn't, you know, I looked into the idea of lockdowns and all that, and I saw that actually science said the exact opposite, yeah. never do that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, really, uh, there's evidence. So I realized there's something really wrong. The, then the other thing, the lockdowns, what they actually did, they, they, there were a couple of things that the lockdowns did. Yes, they made people, you know, <laughs> uh prisoners in their home isolate them isolation is the worst thing and of course a lot of elderly really really suffered they died um but they also demolished local businesses well that's the transfer of wealth so everybody has to now use zoom technology um amazon you know only the big um box stores and do everything digitally um at that time there wasn't the digital and all that but there certainly was house arrest and, th and things like that where you couldn't go out and there were uh curfews uh but once they really started to push the vaccine and before it was even launched before it was before it was let out of the bag, because I think it must have been already in, in some warehouse before, because it was talked about so much, you know, as uh, Gates called it the final solution. Um, that, and of course, the, that, that it got linked right away to Green Passport. I mean, that's it. That was, yeah. That, that the parallel is, is definite. And, you know, right now, I, I think it was France that, that took back passports of people who didn't have the third shot. Well, you know, that's what Hitler did. Uh, I think it was 38 or 39 when he uh, eliminated the passports of Jews, because by, that was the time that the gates were closed. Before 38, he actually encouraged Jews to leave uh, they just had to leave all their property, but many didn't go. Many did. Thank and you very much for your evidence, uh, Mr. Shkaraf. Thank you. Well, Vera, I want to say um, I'm sure glad that someone like you is still sitting in the saddle because that is really, <laughs> really encouraging. Uh, so we're not all alone here. But we have someone at our side who keeps reminding us of what this all comes from. And I think if we don't see history, history will will repeat itself. That's why it's so important to see the parallels. Um, and I think um, I, I'm wondering, would you agree with that? Um, those who chose and choose to ignore the parallels, aren't they the true Holocaust deniers? Yes. That's what that's what I'm saying, but especially those who pounce on people 
mm-hmm. who do make the connection. This has been, you know, this is a constant. I mean, Bobby Kennedy had that happen to him. I, you know, and in fact, I began to really take on whatever interviews I'm asked after an interview with Bobby in which I raised him in something. And he said, well, you can talk about that, but I can't. And I thought to myself, why not? I mean, talk clarifies. Talk is, is how we communicate. I mean, I don't believe in, in having subjects verboten, you know? Mm-hmm. If, if somebody forbids me, then that's what I want to <laughs> go and look up. <laughs> because, yeah, I realized, I finally realized that this is very important. They, they are doing that with, with the venom, and a lot of Jewish institutions are doing it, trying to prevent people from seeing the connection. Well, I'm doing that. This is Sharaf. Yes. Thank you so much. You remember me, uh, the uh, Albert Einstein quote, if I were to remain silent, yes. I would be guilty of complicity. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, look, that is what we have to remember. Not, right, not to be complicit by silence, because silence means we don't want to see what's happening, but it's happening yeah. and it only gets escalated. Well, thank you again, Vera. Um, I think this is very powerful and I think this will, um, at least for many people, make a big difference. It's a difference between someone who has heard stories and someone who has been there, who has seen it. Um, that's why it's so it's so powerful. And I think we have to continue doing this kind of work, all of us. And that's what I hope will inspire many more people to speak out and not to be silenced, because that's what makes the difference. That is what Professor Desmond says. We all of us have to keep on talking about what's really going on. We have to bring out the truth, because once we are silenced, it's all over. This will never happen. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us. This was extremely Do another round. I think you you ought to do this as a traveling show, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Because, no, really, you want to reach more and more people, because that's the point. I mean, I think that anybody who plugs in, you know, Mm. um, you know, it opens up, you know, avenues of information, and, and obviously it's credible people. Uh, and that, that's important. You know, there's a lot going on, really. Many are doing things, but I think this kind of format uh, is a very important, and I think it does. It probably should do more of it. Thank you. Will will this will probably be only the first step? We have decided that there's going to be more to come, um, and um, again. Um, if you're going to be with us, uh, it's very, it's very encouraging, and I think it'll it'll turn a lot of people around and make a lot of people decide to get off the right side of the fence of those forty percent. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Good luck. To thank all you of very us. much to all of us. Yes, have a great thank weekend. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, as as Vera said, this is not the end. Um, there will be more. 
we'll take a short break of maybe uh, two weeks or so. And during that break, we're going to play um, some of the some of the uh, witnesses' testimony because um, it is always important, as Patrick said, if you're in a court of law, uh, to and especially if you have a jury, to appeal to the emotions. What we've also learned is by having the victims speak out, uh, they connect with each other. It has a therapeutic value, which we were both surprised to see. So this is what's going to happen over the next two weeks. And then, and also we're going to um, uh, summarize all of the six sessions that we've had so that uh, we can see them in 20-minute clips. Um, that will be easier to digest, and many more people will be able to see this. And since these are all real witnesses, real experts, uh, I think it's going to be very, very persuasive. At the end of the next two weeks, we're going to have uh, closing arguments, and then we're going to have people vote on what they've seen. The jury will decide whether or not the six um, people, the putative defendants, will be indicted. Uh, but until then, we will show some of the clips uh, and uh, we will uh, summarize, show some of the um, uh, witnesses' testimony. We will summarize the long sessions. Some of the sessions were really long. Tonight's session was not quite as long, but it's going to be easier to digest. And I think that's going to be helpful in coming to a conclusion and coming to decisions. Also, what we want to see and what we hope is going to come from this is that many more people in their regions will understand that they have to do it themselves. No cavalry is going to come riding in. We're going to have to do this ourselves. In particular, the judiciary. We have to make the judiciary do what it's supposed to do or set up a whole new judiciary. And that's something we're going to be talking about as well. There are some excellent ideas already. Okay. So thank you very much, everyone. Uh, uh, Your Honor, Judge Rui de Fonseca y Castro, thank you for staying with us so long. And Deepali, thank you for staying with us so long. I know you're four mm -hmm. and a half hours ahead of us. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Deepali. Thank you, Patrick. Can I make a shout out? Of right course, now. go ahead. To, to the young people that are here. Yeah. We have a lot of great, there's a lot of gray hair in this group, let's face it, you know, <laughs> well, I'll speak for myself. Uh, Vera could be, have more gray hair than she probably has, but, you know, she's been around, right? <laughs> what, what we want, I'll tell you what my generation wants is to see young people involved. Yeah. And I'm so encouraged by the young people that are involved here. Yeah. I'll tell you what, this, this is the future. The old people, the older generation can't fight the battles. They don't have, they will not have the energy. They will not have the stamina. I mean, there's lots of reasons why, because old people eventually get old and die. But the younger generation that's getting this, that's standing up. I, I'm thinking of the song in, by Eric Clapton in, uh, out of Great Britain, Stand and Deliver. Excellent song. These young people are standing and delivering. And I'm so encouraged by that. I just, I wanna thank all you young people go out and find a friend and get them involved, whatever. But this is the, this is the encouragement of the age today that there's a younger generation that's really, really starting to get it. And this is the hope for the future right now, in my opinion. So thank you guys. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wood. So there's more to come. Thank you everyone and have a great weekend.
Segunda-feira. Bye, bye. bye, bye.